0: have the new product at InfowarsLife.com. BioTrue Selenium. We've had so many requests over the years for selenium, and just recently we were able to source a certified organic, bioavailable selenium from mustard seed extract. When you take selenium in the body, it actually benefits the detoxification systems in your body. It helps balance the thyroid gland, it helps detoxify. Selenium is another one of those absolute must-haves. The highest concentration of selenium is in the Thyroid gland, but it's actually used all over the body. As a matter of fact, there's 25 genes in the body that are directly dependent upon selenium. So it really
1: is a all-around nutrient that everybody really needs. I'm taking it now, every day. This is so key. BioTrue Selenium is the product, the best selenium that we could bring you. We believe it's the best out there at a very, very low price. Exclusively available at InfowarsLife.com or by calling toll-free triple eight two five three three one three nine.
2: Attention, patriots. Tired of the tyranny and crime in the sanctuary cities? Flee the city and seek refuge in the American Redoubt. Fleethecity.com. Move to the freedom of Idaho, Montana, or Wyoming. Fleethecity.com. Fleethecity.com.
3: You've made a serious investment in protecting yourself and your family. You've purchased a gun, the ammunition,
1: the training, and even secured a license to carry in your state. You know the Constitution and don't believe you should have to pay for a right that you already have as written in the Second Amendment,
3: but you are law-abiding. Now you are considering the legal defense options you should have if you ever have to use a firearm. Self-Defense Fund is a comprehensive litigation membership backing you on appeals, legal expenses, court costs, and more. Up to $1 million per incident and unlimited attorney costs per member. Discover SelfDefenseFund.com for yourself. Any weapon, any state, any time.
2: Are you sick and tired of just being sick and tired? Are you sick and tired of being told that you are somehow privileged? Are you sick and tired of being told to shut up, both at work and at school? Are you sick and tired of panhandlings pestering you whenever you go out to shop or to eat? Are you sick and tired of jobs that never come and an economy that never goes anywhere? Are you sick and tired of having to take orders from incompetence? Are you sick and tired of movies and television shows that depict a white man as a bumbling incompetent? Are you sick and tired of a government that welcomes non-white immigrants and exposes you to diseases? If you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, then the American Freedom Party is for you. Connect with us, theamericanfreedomparty.us. Once again, TheAmericanFreedomParty.us American
0: Freedom Party dot US Now's your chance to get the last of the Resolution Radio Blood Tees. Only a few left available before we try to do a reorder. This has been a high-selling item and we really appreciate everyone's support in getting this shirt and showing their pride as well as showing their heritage. Nothing counts more than blood. Get yours today from Resolution Radio. Only $25 plus $5 shipping and handling. It really helps the network improve and you really get a great product to showcase what you truly believe in. Nothing counts more than blood. Only from Resolution Radio at resolutionrdo.com. Send check, money order, or well-concealed cash to Sonny Thomas at P.O. Box 27, Springboro, Ohio, 45066. That's Sonny Thomas at P.O. Box 27, Springboro, Ohio, 45066. You're listening to Resolution Radio. ResolutionRDO.com
3: Welcome to Ftn. Merry Christmas to all of you. I am Jazz hans McFields, and I'm here with Warren Baylog for our very first. This is our first Christmas special because we had something else last year that I think we pre-recorded. Don't remember. Uh, what was our thing?
4: I just remember us talking about the fake Christmas trees. I must remember. Probably impromptu was
3: part of an actual episode. Yeah.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but yes, Merry Christmas to everybody. Merry
5: Christmas. Um, yeah. I hope you, you'll hear this on. Uh,
3: Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. When will they hear? <laughs> this is what happens. This is what happens when we have no prep. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, this, is all, this, this is all impromptu. But no, this is uh, this is going to be released on Christmas Eve. So it will be Christmas Eve when you hear this. So Merry Christmas. Maybe some of you will listen to it on Christmas Day. Um, and yeah, so I think that's what's got me in my head. It's like this is the first time we've ever done anything like this. Uh, I think we did release the deep dive for the World War One uh, Christmas Truce around christmas weekend but this is uh i can't remember the last time where basically you know if it's sunday it's ftn it's also if if it's sunday it's christmas so i think that's where the alignment is is happening so so yeah and i know there's a lot of guys um you know who may not be able to spend time with family this year uh talked to one of the guys in in our chat uh, a couple days ago um and uh i know you know it's it's tough it's a tough time of year Um, there's other people out there going through the same thing that you are. Uh, and I know that the thing that just talking to this guy, the thing that drives people that are kind of stuck in that situation, um, kind of the most insane is, is telling them, bro, you have to be happy because it's Christmas and everyone should be happy. So that's not a, just, just a point of advice. Like if you, if you encounter somebody who's having a tough time, don't say that to them. Um, they they just uh kind of just want to be included and part of the thing and if if you're in a group <clears throat> you're part of a um an NJP supporter group and you know other guys uh don't have plans or can't be with family on Christmas like just go out and do something maybe things are closed but if there's a way for you guys to get together uh try to do it even if it's christmas eve um and you feel like oh it's too late for this year make a plan for the 26th i mean just just try to you know make some plans with people so they don't feel like um, they're they're just alone because they never. No one in our thing should ever have to feel alone, uh, especially on uh, this kind of holiday. And it's especially tough because everything is closed um, for the most part. Although that even that is changing, isn't it, Warren? Um, things things don't completely close down. I guess if you're in a small town, it completely closes.
4: But well, I'm sure there's somebody in our audience who's going to have to work on Christmas Day. You know, uh, emergency mm-hmm. services people and. I don't know how many police we have listening to this, except for the ones that are. (laughs) If you're you're on duty uh, uh, because you're here to spy on the Nazis uh, on. I was going to say all
3: the all the Feds out there, you know. Yeah, if you're a Fed and this
4: is uh, we're we're ruining your Christmas, then uh, I'm very uh, glad that. you get to spend this time with us and maybe maybe now's the time to you know be visited from the ghosts of Goyam past you know and and have a change of heart the fed will wake up you know christmas morning it'll be like that's it i'm mm-hmm. gonna leave the fbi but uh and i'm gonna start dating girls again but um but yes very good message uh, you know you also have to think about everybody out there who um had a rough year people i mean i know not in the movement, but I know friends and neighbors. It was a rough year, actually. A lot of people I know lost someone uh, very mm-hmm. close to them. And, uh, you know, that's always a horrible thing. First Christmas with someone that uh, you've been with, you know, a couple that have been married for 40 years or something like that. And so, uh, so yeah. And that will be kind of the theme of our whole uh show here is just to think of others on christmas yes. and if there's anyone yeah. you, you know that is in a rough situation to try to bring
3: them some cheer. Yeah, I just talked to somebody last night uh who had a family member um pass away unexpectedly. Um and it's tearing that family apart. It's it's really tough and so just the other thing kind of in our in our movement um you know, people tend to be online, people tend to be uh sometimes a little bit the snippy with each other online, just um give people a little bit of extra space, uh, because it is kind of a tough time of year. You never know what another person is going through um at any moment. And usually, you know, if somebody's having a tough time, um, you know, sometimes it manifests in, in frustration. So just give people a little bit extra space. Um don't push people over the edge. Uh, you know, I don't want to be, you know, the the counselor here, but I see I see and hear a lot of things um, you know, what people are going through. And so you get kind of a wider perspective. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people are going through a tough time. So give them some space. Give them some love. Give give them some brotherly white love um, because uh, we we can all stand together uh, in a time like this. So, um, so yeah, we're going to be we've done a number of deep dives on Christmas, uh, which will be at the end of this episode, actually. Um, and this will be this is going to be about a Christmas carol and Charles Dickens, Uh, and Oliver Twist as well, because there's a lot of tie-in with that. Um, And it's intended to be uplifting. Uh, We will be talking about Jews, of course. Uh, But we've also done deep dives on uh, the Tannenbaum, the history of the Christmas tree. We did one on the World War I uh, Christmas truce between the German and the French soldiers. Um, And we also have done a whole series of deep dives on uh, Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. Um, and th- those guys as well. <laughs> not not the favorites, not the favorites of a lot of people. But hey, look, I still listen to, to Frank. Doesn't mean I don't put on the vinyl of Frank Sinatra or Dean Martin. Dean Martin's actually got a very sterling track record. Uh, he is a good guy. But Frank Sinatra, you know, you sort of have to look past some stuff, enjoy the music. Um, but, you know... Uh, it's it's quite interesting. And I the have song flashbacks titles. when you whenever you mention
4: Frank Sinatra to me, I have flashbacks of like I, I'm like traumatized from that video <laughs> you sent me.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, that video of him the yeah. the propaganda video for World War II and leave those yeah, you and know the, leave the Jewish kid yes. alone. Oh yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then when when you hear about him like you know literally smuggling weapons for Israel um, and raised by a a jewish yenta because his parents were too busy and he wore a little mezuzah around his neck oh yeah dude it's 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 pretty pretty intense but the making up the song titles like judaizing the frank sinatra song titles like fly me to the jews and this mezuzah of mine, and uh, you'll find me in Tel Aviv. Uh, yeah, it's oh, dude. There's all all kinds of stuff, really funny shit. But Sammy Davis Jr. actually converted to become a Jew. Like, there's pictures of him with a giant, like, gold, like, Jew cross uh, or Jew Jew uh, star. So it's really kind of funny. Those guys, the Rat Pack, the Rat faced Kike Pack, is what I like to call them. But the music is very good, and um, Frank always had a good sense of humor. But look, I'm just I'm a Dean I'm a Dean Martin guy at heart because he just was. <laughs> Free and clear of all that bullshit. Um so anyway.
6: Yeah. Those are all ideas. I think I think that's all the, the Christmas deep dives that we've done. I don't think we've done anything. So I have to keep up coming up
3: with new ones. But but Christmas Carol in particular piqued my interest because, you know, there's kind of the notion that Scrooge is a Jew, right? This is this is kind of the thing that's out there. The Jewish Daily Forward um has written a piece something along the lines of the anti-Semitism of Charles Dickens. And Charles Dickens is an anti-Semite. I mean, how many times in Oliver Twist does he, in the original version of Oliver Twist, does he say Fagin the Jew? Like, isn't Um, it 300 some odd times? Yeah. uh, uh, Let's
4: see. I got the text right here. Yeah. So the Jew. Not Jew, but like like Dave Chappelle said, when you use the two words, the and Jews, <laughs> but when he says the Jew, uh, three hundred and eight times in the text, and nice. Jew just without the in front of it is more is more than that. It's like three three twenty eight altogether, I think, from Amazing. the text that I'm looking at from Gutenberg
3: dot org. Uh, so, so yeah, he, um, he wanted he wanted you to know that Fagin was a Jew. It sounds like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. That was actually yeah, pretty I, common. What, what's interesting is um, if you look at, I guess, linguistics or uh, what would the, I don't know what the proper, word, the study of language. I don't think linguistics is, there's another word for the study of language. It doesn't really matter. But the Jew was actually like a suffix that was affixed to names uh, in legal terms. Oh yeah, I remember this from Alexander Hamilton, because we were looking into the, the uh, genealogical history of Richard... Levine the stepfather the Jewish stepfather who married Alexander Hamilton's mother Rachel Levine and we were looking into the the way that you prove that that Levine was a Jew because his name was spelled L-A-V-I-E-N is that if you go back into Dutch records um, from before he came to the Caribbean his name is recorded as uh, Richard Levine the Jew and it is like on ship manifests and it's part of like official documentation where you would say the Jew so I'm not bringing that up because we're trying to say, well, Dickens was just um, doing um, things that he was a man of his time. He just did the thing that people did. Now he wanted you to know that Fagin was a Jew because yes. he's 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 depicted as a, as a Jew, and we'll talk about Oliver Twist a, li- yes. a little bit later. But but setting the ground here, like Charles Dickens, raging anti semite of his day, um, and had a lot of reason to be. Uh, he mm-hmm. he grew up he grew up in a time when England was was. Uh, rapidly transitioning into an industrialized, uh, heavily, heavily industrialized uh, society, um, he had grown up in a in a um, pretty privileged lifestyle. His father worked for um, the navy, which in the early 1800s uh, would have been, you know, the 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 pride of uh, of of England, and essentially what what allowed it to become a global empire. Um, and at some point. His father was, was very bad at managing money. Um, and, you know, you could say he, his father was bad at managing money, or Jews were creating the type of system in England where people would just fall into debt slavery at the drop of a hat, which is more closer to the truth. And uh, his dad ended up in, in debtor's prison, and Charles Dickens ended up uh, pressed into child labor at a very young age in a, uh, in a boot. Blackening factory, I believe, what they call it, boot blackening factory, where you basically like got just blackening the boots, and and if you were put in debtor's prison, I was looking into this, and we'll talk more about debtor's prison too. I'm just setting the stage for why Charles Dickens might have been an anti semite. Um, you know, in in debtor's prison, he would have seen things like prisoners being put on treadmills. Uh, that this is where the first use of a treadmill known um was put into into service prisoners were put on treadmills to power the the uh various like pieces of machinery like it's literally like the most horrific like thing you could come up with um and debtors prisons were privately managed uh and they they would charge you for every piece of movement that like you you actually had to they they would add a fee to your bill as the debtor for literally taking your shackles on and off. Um, I mean, it was literally like that insane. And so Charles Dickens seeing this and then experiencing child's, child, child labor uh, simultaneously, um, suffice it to say, I mean, you know, all the things that Jews try to tell everybody about why people become anti-Semites. What's the answer, Warren? It's always delusional. It's always uh, unjustifiable. It's always... You know, they, they were told lies about the Jews, you know, these, these like um, whisper campaigns, superstitions. I mean, gee, I mean, he just must have heard from one too many people that Jews poison wells, right, Warren? That just, I mean, that's right. just turned them off to him. You know, they, they drank the blood of the little children. He probably heard all these things, but maybe it's because some of the creditors that his father owed money to were Jewish. And the creditors refused to release his father from these debts. And his father was ruined because of this. And maybe it's the reason that he had to go work in a factory, you know, blackening boots as a child. I mean, five years old or something that's insane.
4: insane. Yeah. No, that's insane. And uh, yeah, if you look at Dickens' lifespan from 18, he was born in 1812 and he died in 1870. So he basically straddles the Napoleonic era. I mean, 1812 is, was the peak of Napoleon's power. And uh, Waterloo is 1815, so that he was three years old when Waterloo happened. And then, and then you have England really finally defeats Napoleon, and then it reigns supreme. And then you have the whole Victorian age in 1870. That's around the time of the Zulu War, you know, with the Redcoats in South Africa. I mean, that's like the the high colonial exploring Africa and all the rest of it. But I mean, that that lifespan basically spans the. Complete, like as you said, the complete transformation of England from a from a primarily agrarian society to a totally industrial society.
3: Yes, well, and so the railroads the came. Change. Yeah, yes. Ra- railroads were, you know, that the the they became popularized uh, and and were there first. I mean, America's, you know, because we're sort of like, you know, America centric. Like you might think that the with the transcontinental railroad and uh, the railroads built America and all that, and that's true, but they were popularized in, in England first. And, and actually, mm-hmm. uh, if you think about the geography of the United Kingdom being an island and things being relatively closer than in America, uh, it would be easy, actually, to set up pretty intricate rail networks in the UK before uh, it would have been in America and cost prohibitive in America and clearing the land and one of the things that was most prohibitive of railroads um was indians um and violence where in england they could you know it's like they they don't have to worry about these things and so the, the railroad and the steam engine in particular because the steam engine allowed them uh to to build the railroad but it also allowed them to power uh, all of the industrial machinery um and what happened was a very very rapid uh Polarization of, of wealth disparity in England. Um, surely there was always an elite class. Surely there was always uh, wealthy landowners, uh, nobles, um, merchants, uh, sort of a middle class, and then you know the 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 very lower lower classes. Uh, but that became into very sharp contrast, like even sharper than it ever had been before. Um, and so you know the concept of debtors' prisons had been around. Uh, in England since the 14th century and I'll I'll dive into that later but um I want to talk about Dickens here because the focus of this is on The Christmas Carol but setting this up for his anti-semitism um and also his his upbringing growing up very poor uh Dickens grew up very poor uh, set a lot of goals for himself um and one of the things that he did and was able to achieve this uh once he achieved some level of notoriety was uh, the home that he grew up in, which was a very beautiful Elizabethan home in Chatham, England. Um, he, he said that when his parents, when his family lost that home, um, he said, I'm going to buy that one day. I'm going to get this back. Uh, and he does. He indeed does. Um, but before he does that, he was in in significant debt. Um, and a lot of it was from trying to get himself going with becoming a, an author. Uh, and Christmas Carol was written in 1843, um, and in 1843, uh, Charles Dickens was in extreme debt, very difficult situation. Um, he'd already written, uh, I believe, a pick, Pickwick Papers was his first, and then a cur- Old Curiosity Shop was his second. Um, but you know, he had he he had accrued some debt, um, and he needed to get out of it, and was desperate to get out of it, and because of the situation of his father. And so uh, he had actually traveled to America for the first time that year in 1843 uh, and had just gotten back from America in October. Um, and I believe he had attended some sort of uh, gathering or party or, or something uh, in October of 1843 and had been struck with this idea of writing. First of all, his goal was to write a very popular novel to get himself out of debt. So. What's going to have broad-based mass appeal, right? Um, because there there was a rebirth and a renaissance of of Christmas in the UK at this time because of uh, the marriage of, of Prince Albert um, and uh, to the Queen, and you had uh, the the German German Christmas was was much more. Uh, how do you describe this contrast? In England, Christmas had basically become. Just a day when you had two days off from this grueling, insane, sort of like repetitious, like horrible life as a laborer, as a child laborer, as a teenage laborer, as an adult laborer, short life. um, And you got two days off. People couldn't afford uh, decorations and carols and things like this. And so Christmas, while at one time in England had been celebrated more prominently, was was slipping away because of just this just industrialization, modernity. It's way crazy how it has a habit of doing these things. Right. <laughs> but, but Germany, it was becoming very popular. Like the, Chris, like the uh, Prince Albert put up a Christmas tree um, and there was a an etching made of this. And because of that and because of people in England always doing what the royalty was doing because it's fashionable, Christmas trees became very fashionable. But they're, they're fashionable all over continental Europe because of Germany and the Tannenbaum and everything like that. Um right. And so Scrooge, Scrooge <laughs> Dickens is trying to tap into this this sort of uh resurgence of Christmas although he himself by writing this Christmas carol uh played a role in really vaulting Christmas into a, a major kind of what it is today, the modern holiday. I hear I see a lot of articles say it like Christmas carol is what made Christmas what it is today. That's not actually true because Christmas actually was a very popular holiday in, a, in many different places. And it was industrialization that was starting to kill it. The Christmas carol, w- along with the, the intermarriage of uh, the the House of Windsor with, with Germany, is the combination of what brought a renaissance of Christmas. Because otherwise, if you read it the first way, it's like, well... Christmas Carol made Christmas what it is. It's like no, it used to be great, and then Jewish industrialism destroyed it, and then it was brought back because people realized what they had been missing. Um, but, but yeah, I'll pause there because I didn't want to. I didn't want to. Well, yeah, it just uh, you know Charles Dickens
4: is considered a romantic uh, of the romantic period, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it, when you think about that idea, it, it fits right in with first of all the 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 the, the day or the year that it was uh, written. I guess it was published in eighteen forty three um but also the uh the circumstances of the time and of Dickens's own life it fits in with romanticism as a a response and a reaction to the excesses of yes. enlightenment enlightenment rationality so yes. enlightenment rationality you know brings you science and medicine and all these wonderful things, but but it also then brings you the factory and the fifteen-hour workday and the slums and the and the just you know the stock exchange and the all these horrible uh, extreme excesses of industrial capitalism and of the mach- the beginning of the machine age, and uh, so yes, you could see just the 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 ro- romanticization of Christmas and Christmas is something that is very <laughs> immune to. Um, rationalization and that kind of like hard-nosed calculation i mean christmas is even today christmas Mm -hmm. is still in in this hyper-capitalist uh global order christmas is still yes it's this island of just of family and warmth and coziness and and just thinking of things other than than the bottom line and getting ahead and and the next you know so uh so yeah you can see it very much fitting into um the the romantic response to the excesses of the Enlightenment.
3: Yeah, well, and there's there's that. There's the fact that Dickens himself had become somewhat of an outspoken uh activist of sorts, uh, because of his fame, um, where his namesake was featured in in many different advertisements, but also as a as a voice against debtor prison and child labor. And that was a, those were causes that he fought all of his life. And so um the the foundational element of course of a christmas carol is this uh horrific um experience of of the cratchit family uh scrooge's reaction to it uh and and this this notion that we need to be more self-sacrificing um that this is innate into who we are uh and that scrooge is encouraged to come home by these three ghosts The other thing that's kind of present in this story is not just the the sort of the highlighting these social issues that were highly problematic in uh, Victorian society at the time, but also the what was also popular in literature then was was uh, gothic fiction, gothic fiction, gothic motifs, which were also uh, something that was shared by our good friend uh, Richard Wagner uh, in not not too long after this. Um, interestingly enough. But um, the the notion of, of the supernatural uh, and yes. ghost stories, uh, this was very uh, popular in England at the time. And so people might not realize this because the ghost of Christmas past and present and future is just something that is, it's an interesting story. It's a narrative that's very common, but it's unique for Christmas Carol. But this would have been this would have been something that would have made it very exciting for people to want to read about. So, um,
4: it's funny you say that because I just showed my son uh, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and uh, he loved it, and it was great. But, uh, and I love that film. But it's funny because I was thinking about how – because my son is very much – ever since Halloween, he's been extremely on a kick with, like, ghosts and haunted houses and, and you know, Scooby-Doo, all that kind of thing. He, he loves anything to do with ghosts and haunted houses. And I was thinking with A Nightmare Before Christmas, so I thought, what a great idea to do a mashup of Halloween themes with Christmas and I'd leave it to Tim Burton to come up with that. But then I thought – I actually thought of A Christmas Carol and I thought, of course, because when I was a kid – and I'd watch that old nineteen fifty-one version of a Christmas Carol. I was terrified when Jacob Marley first appears. He's he's really depicted in at least in that version as a very frightening ghost. So uh yeah, that's one Christmas Carol uh did the the, the Halloween Christmas mashup thing of, of ghosts on Christmas before it was cool. But also, yes, absolutely, that fits completely into romantic the 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 uh Romanticism in literature, the idea of the macabre and of ghosts and apparitions and, and hauntings. Uh, so yeah, leave it to Dickens, the, the romantic author, to weave uh, a, a ghost story into a Christmas story and blend the two.
3: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how it's, it's blended together in that way. And it's also smart um, because the, the three ghosts are somewhat representative of, of the Trinity, um, so what's right. interesting about, about, uh, Christmas Carol is that it's not overtly religious. Um, and this is one of the things, one of the reasons why I think it achieved, uh, widespread popularity, um, because it did not make, uh, it's not anti-religious because there's a lot of religious elements to it. And it's certainly not anti-Christian. It's certainly not anti, um, Christmas at all. Uh, and there are and he does give kind of a nod to Christianity with the the, the Trinity, of course. Um, but what makes it uh, not lost in the the sort of uh, intra-religious autisms that would have been present in Europe at the time between Catholics and Protestants and blah, 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 blah. Um, it, it it anybody can enjoy this story. Um, and yes. it, it it doesn't it doesn't really, you know, a lot of people can see themselves um in Scrooge and and um he's supposed to be that sort of character. And fundamentally that's why uh I actually you and I talked about this extensively um because you know I, I totally rejected the notion that Scrooge was was supposed to be a Jew. And one of the biggest reasons is um because Dickens is an anti-Semite and Oliver Twist was written before a Christmas Carol. And so he had no problem saying Fagin the Jew 308 times. And if he wanted you to know <laughs> that, that that Ebenezer Scrooge was a Jew, he would have told you that Ebenezer Scrooge was a Jew 308 times. Um, and there's all this kind of like uh, just weird sort of like, you know, trying to read the decoder ring kind of garbage all over the Internet about like, well, Ebenezer is a Jewish name and uh, uh, money lender. He's not a money lender. <laughs> he lent money. As credit in exchange for goods and services. But that's besides the point. But people are trying to connect all these dots. Now, what my narrative is, is that Scrooge was given very inherently, like, because Charles Dickens knows Jews very well, for the same reasons, yes. Scrooge was given inherently Jewish characteristics. And these Jewish characteristics, this Jewish morality that Scrooge has, um, that he has to get away from. Um, that his, his, uh, former partner, Jacob Marley, who I was actually more certain was actually Jewish. But the problem with him being Jewish is why would he come back to try to stop Scrooge from being a Jew, um, right. you know, unless you go down the narrative of like, well, he died and then found out that, you know, he's been wrong all along and that Jesus was the savior and that he's now in hell trying to beg, beg Scrooge to, to repent. But, um, but Jacob Marley uh, is also not Jewish because of some things that are mentioned about uh, his own family and celebrating Christmas with Marley. We know that Scrooge is not the easiest way to prove that Scrooge is not Jewish, and that Charles Dickens intended him to be not Jewish is the conversation that he has with Fred um, in some aspects of the book, and also with his uh, with his lover Bell, um, where he talks about oh no, his sister, not. Not his lover Bell. He talks to his sister, I believe, uh, and they talk. They talk about celebrating Christmas as children, um, which they would not do. Uh, and right. somebody really proved this point, like beyond all shadow of a doubt. in um, in one of the things that I was reading where they said, okay, so if Scrooge's Chris or if Scrooge's sister was celebrating Christmas as a child, um, it, but let's say that she's Jewish. If she's celebrating Christmas now, then if she was raised jewish then that means that she would have had to have converted to christianity like to marry a christian man and is talking about celebrating christmas as a child and as an adult like none of it makes sense like none of it adds up what adds up is that and the biggest thing for me honestly is that charles dickens would, would have just called scrooge a jew um well, even if you want well, to make well, the <laughs> argument that he was trying to do something that was like for good optics and widespread appeal you have to remember nobody gave a shit about anti-semitism he could like he wrote Fagin yes. and, and it was popular because yes. this was people understood who the villain was. Um, you know, if, if, if he and had written this story and, the story uh... and, and made <laughs> one, one last sentence, if he had made Fagin uh, about the royal family and totally omitted Jews, everybody would have been like, is Dickens a Jew? I mean <laughs> like,
4: anyway yes. go ahead uh, well I'm just going to uh you know we'll, we'll we'll dip into that essay I think uh the one that yes. we both found but uh he specifically to just address the, the the is Scrooge supposed to be a Jew thing even Dickens in this letter was talking about how with Fagan it's not so much a religious Jew that he had in mind but a racial Jew like that's what he had in mind so so Dickens also he is not seeing the Jews as purely a, uh, just a different faith. You know, Jews are, are people who believe in Judaism and have not converted to Christianity. Like, like Dickens had a racial understanding of what Jews were, an ethnic understanding of what Jews were. And, uh, and, and again, yeah, it would just defeat the whole purpose of the story, which is the redemption of, uh, of a, of an Aryan who has lost his way. You know, and uh, who has lost his
3: way from the true, yeah. the, the
4: natural way that Aryans
3: are supposed to be. His happier life from his past. There's the reason why the ghost of Christmas past is this like jovial, happy guy um, who, who is like th- what he was like before. Um, and the ghost of Christmas future, his Jewish future is literally death. It's Literally, yes. yes. Um, yes. And, and and but Jacob Marley is like, you will die. And all of these all of these boxes and chains that you will drag around with you um, are all the people, all of the really immoralities that you gather along the way, all of the destruction that you reap living this kind of lifestyle. And I mean, there are going to be people that want to say, oh, no, he, they're just talking about Philo Semites. Philo Semites will say, oh, no, Scrooge is just a sinner we're all sinners. Yeah, you're capable of being a sinner. You're capable of behaving like a Jew. Um because that's ultimately yes. who they're talking about. Um everything that's wrapped up in in Satan worship and everything else, it's all the same stuff. So, um Scrooge Sc- Scrooge is somebody who uh became this way um because of the modern industrialized society that he was living in. In Marley is his partner. Marley is also somewhat of a, uh, Scrooge was Marley's protege. And so Scrooge was really taking cues from Marley, but Scrooge also experienced a lot of pain and difficulty in his own life. Um, you know, he had people close to him who died. Um, he lost his, his loved one, uh, bell, but they sort of tell the story where bell doesn't want to be with him because he becomes a kind of a miserly son of a bitch. Um, and that's, that's also a lesson too, is that you're just going to be, you're going to die alone. I mean, that's the story that they say is like, you're going to die alone. People are just going to pick over your, um, your life, your, whatever your physical remnants, uh, like they have in that one scene. And I think that, what is it? The 83 version, 1983. Um, I think it's depicted in every movie, even the Muppet version, they depict that. Um, but he is a, he's a guy who Gets redemption and oh, I know what I was going to say. Sort of filibustering there because I was trying to get back to this one point, which is that there are Jews out there who want to paint Scrooge as a Jew um, because they want Jews to be included in a story. It's like it's like a double-edged sword, right? They don't want to tell a story about a Jew converting to Judaism or converting to Christianity, but they talk about it's a religious, and so he's not really converting to Christianity. He's just. Becoming a, a a Jew that we're all supposed to be like they're sort of like projecting themselves onto like the ideal Christian morality when they know that they can never be that like that's one of the you'll have Jews who criticize the story because they're saying that the way that Dickens is telling the story is that the only way that you can be happy is to become like celebrate Christmas and have a Christian morality. So therefore it's barred from Jews ever participating, but that's the same reason why some Jews will read into the story that he's a Jew who is being kind of redeemed, but they don't ever say that he's going to church now on, on the 25th. It just say that he's he's being nicer to his employees and treating everybody better. But I mean, in the circular Jewish economy, then Bob Cratchit would be a Jew and Bob Cratchit's family would be Jews and um, all of the charities that Scrooge would donate to would be Jewish. And then it works out the way that they usually conduct their affairs. But that's not what Dickens intended at all. He intended the everyday, pretty much anybody in Victorian England uh, to be able to relate to this story. And I would even say anybody but Jews, because Jews don't think about starting to give of themselves freely and being one with the world and being honest and being kind to other people, except maybe to each other. But in that, even they struggle. Because one of the origins of debtors' prisons is actually Jews not paying each other's debts, uh, which we'll get into later. But go ahead, Warren. You guys, well, I was just going
4: to say I like I like that, yeah, because uh, the Christian themes are woven throughout the, the text, um, but I like that it's not just Scrooge is now going to go to church uh, because it fits with um, one of, um, I had to look it up, um, but it's one of Hitler's uh, favorite quotes from uh, the Bible, where he says um, the thing of the, uh, John, let us not love in word, but in deed. You know? um, the idea mm-hmm. of not in word, but in deed is something that Hitler in his speeches, when he would invoke Christianity, he would say that sometimes when when he was defending the National Socialist Movement, he would say what we're doing, like the Winter Help Work, is getting to the true spirit of Christianity, not in word, but in deed. And, uh, and that's what's pretty cool about the way scrooge transforms is that he is not just practicing christianity now now i'm going to read the bible i'm going to go to church no he's going out there and indeed a changed man you know he is he is acting as as christ would have acted so in in that sense it's just it's great because the themes are woven in there but it's not like you said it's not an explicitly um religious uh story with a specific religious message you know and it has a broader appeal as a result of that uh, it's yeah, it's a fantastic work. When I when I when just talking about it with you, jazz, it it is an amazing. It's one of these things that it's one of the most best known stories out there. And at Christmas, it's just ubiquitous. A Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol, a Christmas Carol. But it is a it fantastic is. story. And I'll, I will say this also, it's something that always, uh, the older you get, the the older I get, the more sentimental I get about it because. You, you do, as you said, you identify with Scrooge, and I've seen like older folks, uh, especially like my parents and, and people older than that, who really, you identify with how Scrooge is like looking back on his life, and how fast it all went, and the mistakes that he made, or the regrets that he had, or people that he lost, you know, <laughs> and especially the stuff with the Christmas, the spirit of Christmas past, because one thing about Christmas is also, um, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, it's both... The happiest time of the year, and can also be sometimes the saddest time of the year, because it's a time that you mark the passing of the year, and you you remember Christmases of the past. You remember the the, what you've had, people that you lost, your parents, you know, your your childhood, grandma, and uh, yeah, and and that's incredibly a powerful um, aspect of the book is that the way Scrooge is is immediately plunged back into his early memories and. And he's, he's forced to think about who he was and the people he loved and who loved him, who he's lost, and how he's become this hard, sort of bitter person. Um, yeah, the themes of it are just eternal. There's a reason why it's,
3: it's, it's not just tradition. There's a reason why this
7: story is so well-loved. Yes. It's
3: timeless. And, and also there's a certain amount of romantic uh, sort of fondness for the, some of the scenes, in, in England, even if it was dirty industrial, but just the, the snow falling in London in a simpler time, especially as there are many parallels between the uh, sort of harsh and sharp pivot into an even harder modernity today parallels the pivot into modernity that those people were experiencing back then. People look at those street scenes in, in England and think, well, that's just classical England. It's like, well those streets in england uh were probably only 20 or 30 years old because london was constantly being subjected to fires because of the close uh inhabitation of the people and the denser population of the city um that a lot of that was relatively re- new all the time it was rebuilt so there's nothing actually classical about it it's only classical to us because we're looking at it <laughs> right. um in in the past but that would have been that would have been as classical as like you walking around some sort of like town center in suburban America today. It's kind of weird to think about, but um, in some ways it's true. Uh, the the story, and, and I want to make this point very clear, and I think we've made it pretty clear already, but the fact that there was not a Christian, you know, an inherent and explicit Christian message in Christmas Carol doesn't mean that it was an- inherently anti-Christian, because I think there's a tendency for people to light switch brain on that. It also doesn't mean that he didn't want to include any Christian message because he was trying to appeal to non-Christians. That's also not true. He was trying to appeal to Christians by putting the Trinity in there, by talking about Christmas, by having all of the the tenets of Christian morality wrapped up in this thing, because precisely because the message the the overarching message of, of a Christmas carol would have been lost in the autism of intra-Christian religious disputes of the time. Um, and people, oh, I don't like that because it's got this symbolism and blah, blah, blah. And then it's like, well, then they'll flush the whole thing down the toilet for all the people that get caught in that fight. Because I've never, and even at the time, have heard any discussion about anything being controversial in that story, except Jews saying that (laughs) there's too much uh, latent, implicit (laughs) anti-Semitism in the story. Right, Um, Right. Now, one of the reasons I thought Bob Marley... Bob Marley. I kept saying that when I was. Bob Marley. (laughs) I kept saying, yeah.
7: I knew that would happen at some point. Yeah, it's like. I'm glad uh, you got it
3: over with
4: early on in the show here, so you know. Bob Marley, the Bob Marley, Uh, yeah.
3: Bob Marley. I was also called him John Dickens too, but John Dickens, I think, is his father. Um, uh, yeah, Jacob Marley. The reason I thought that he might be Jewish, which is really this weird thing that I've encountered in doing some research for this, which is that there is this offshoot play that has been written called bob marley bob marley jesus it is called (laughs) it is called (laughs) jacob marley's a christmas carol and the the author of the play um is a jew oh my goodness who who wrote his name's tom his name's tom mola m-u-l-a sounds like an italian name but he's a Jew. Um, he's an award winning playwright, actor, director for more than 25 years. He received two Joseph Jefferson Awards in 1991 for his play entitled Gollum, G O L E M, at the National Jewish Theater. And as for his work in Nicole Hollander's hit musical Sylvia's Real Good Advice, I don't know what the fuck that's about. But in 1995, he published a novel entitled Jacob Marley's Christmas. And it is because he was an actor uh who played in a Christmas carol uh uh in many different I don't know venues or whatever. And there was like I don't know if this is something that happens in uh, thespianism, um, but he had this like backstage sort of shtick that he did where there's another version of a Christmas carol where it's actually Jacob Marley who is trying to get redemption for himself. And the, the, the central plot of his version of, of A Christmas Carol is that Marley has to redeem Scrooge within 24 hours before Christmas in order for himself to be redeemed. And I, and I was looking at this, and I was looking at where different versions of this Jacob Marley's Christmas Carol is, is being put on as a, as a performance. And it's almost exclusively in, in Jewish theaters, um and in in some others you know it's 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 grown it's grown outside of that but other than like doing a deep dive on this on this i'd never heard of this i didn't know that there was another version i didn't know that a jew had written about it and i was just like well why would why would a jew write a story about bob jacob marley almost did it again jacob marley getting redemption um if jacob marley is is not jewish um and maybe it's just as simple as like they're trying to take the story away from from uh from scrooge or they're trying to uh get redemption for the guy who's already died which would be kind of funny like jews once they die and they find out that they got it wrong the whole time um and they have their literal come to jesus moment um at at the at the reckoning um there is no more redemption but it would make sense that a Jew would write a story about the guy who already died also getting redemption if he did one more favor, right? It's like Jews coming up with new rules to get around the existing rules. <laughs> yeah, Jacob Marley gets to get around it, but I don't think Jacob Marley's Jewish, just for the record. But yeah, well, and, but and it's and really Marley- weird.
6: It's more than just a da- it's more than just a JDF article. It's actually like a guy wrote a book and has a whole popular play that is performed by Jew. It's
3: like, all right. Like, I don't know what this is, but it's really weird, and I kind of don't want to know what it is. But
4: yeah, well, Jacob Marley. I mean, you mentioned it to me and reading about it, he does have a, a a very Jewish name, and Ebenezer, of course, has a an Old Testament name. And we were talking about how just clearly Dickens is trying to suggest that these guys have, you know, taken on some Jewish characteristics in their lives. You know, like they're yeah. they're, they're they've they've become like basically like white Jews you know in there and, and that's a phenomenon we certainly can observe in the, the 21st century there's plenty of people who are uh, who are all Aryan but who have taken on very very Jewish characteristics uh, from from being around Jews from trying to emulate them, their style of doing
3: business, their style of their, their culture, And uh, just like people who have cancer, you can tell when they're afflicted with the disease. And people take on the attributes of a Jew because they're afflicted with the Jewish disease, which is uh, self selfishness. It's corruption. It's greed. I mean, the seven deadly sins uh, of Christianity are 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 there for a reason, and they really just you know people are capable of these things. Um, Right. I I think the difference is is that that Jews are somewhat cursed um, because they're incapable of, of not being that way. Whereas we, like Scrooge, the story of Scrooge is that, no Scrooge, like what you're doing in the way that you're behaving right now, the ghost of Christmas present, which tells the story of him in, in the way that he affects people who are alive today, his impact that he has as himself now, that's not your natural state, Scrooge. That's not who you are. Ghost of Christmas past told you who you are. You go back to who you are, you've gotten lost um come home is the message is come home and that's why so many people uh resonate with it when you read what what rabbis have written about a Christmas carol it's almost like they're like dissecting some sort of like alien fiction like they don't they they want to relate to it because it's so popular with literally everybody and it's become such a like how can you argue with a Christmas carol? I think one road I was going down with this is like it's never been controversial. And it was so popular that everybody wants to relate to it. But guess who has a hard time relating to it? Guess who writes op-eds about a Christmas carol and then tries to twist it into their own morality, which I've read several of them by rabbis, who say, you know, good for Scrooge, but this isn't about Christmas and blah, 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 blah Just like typical Jewish bullshit. But they can't really relate to it because come home to this selflessness, this... Being courageous, being um kind to others, being honest in all of your dealings that is an alien concept to a jew so right it's yeah. and and
4: and Scrooge also there's a characteristic of of with Scrooge that is uh a word that's used to describe him, which is a miser which miser mm-hmm. uh is not something that You know, again, people who have a Mike loves to talk about this. The superficial read of Jews is that they are miserly and that they pinch pennies and that they, uh, you know, are cheap. Um, But you know, if you if you get to intermediate grade anti-Semitism, you realize that Jews actually are not. That's that's not. That's true of Scot- Scottish people, but it's not true of Jews. Uh, Jews don't. They're not. They're not. Uh, Jews
3: are not really. Uh, they will spend and spend. So let freely. me amend. Let me amend my statement. Anybody can relate to a Christmas Carol, except for Jews and Scotsmen. That's pretty much well,
4: it right. Scotsman especially, because Scotsmen are most in need of the of the story of a Christmas Carol. But, but no, <laughs> but what are they coming this home is, to? <laughs> well, well, this is my, my well I'm again. Just, I'm I, jo- I, I know. I know. My, my, just, well my, my joke about uh, j- uh, John Muir is that he the, the great conservationist is that he uh, is one of the great like Scotsmen who just like defies the spirit of all the Scottish robber barons of the of the industrial age that otherwise embody like peak screw. Scroll- But, uh, no, what I was going to say though was that, um, yeah, the Jews are not really, uh, yes, they can be cheap and yes, they drive a hard bargain, but they know when to spend and they know when to invest. And that's why Jews are the top donors. That's why, uh, uh, what's his name? The, um, the little Jew, Bankman Freed, was spending so much. If he had been a miser, he would have he would have held on to his money. He wouldn't be spending it equally in the Democrat and Republican parties. Jews spend more in the political process in for instance in this country than uh Gentiles do. It's one of the big problems actually we have is that uh, right wing goys uh, who, who have money tend to hold on to their money and they don't like to spend it on political stuff, whereas Jews will
3: heavily spend on that. So Scrooge, well, it's the idea, part of their tithe. I mean, it's part of right, like right, literally right, yeah. contributing to Jewish causes and Jewish charity. Yes. Like politics is about upholding like see white whites have been divorced from this notion of political donations being about preserving their race and their religious identity um and jews that's all they think about that's why they donate to both sides because it's about self-preservation whites are just like i want to donate because i want to have a lower taxable income next year lower tax bill next year it's like "Mm, yeah
4: so the problem with jews is not that they are miserly and they hoard their wealth and they don't spend it generously on those in need i mean that that that's true of a lot of jews but that's not really the problem the problem is that they are actively not only are they hoarding wealth but they are they are extracting it through parasitic means. They're exploiting others... And then when they've exploited them, then they're spending their wealth on ways to control those people and to corrupt the state and things like Datter's that. So prison. Scrooge, like, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. So Scrooge is not, you know, Scrooge is not, uh, Scrooge is not Fagan. You know, Scrooge is not exploiting, uh, uh, children. He's running a gang of child prostitutes. He's not, uh, he's just, he's, he has become, you know, the whole uh, story arc with Scrooge is he's someone that was kind, that was sensitive, that was romantic, that did fall in love, that did think of others. And then through the hard experiences that he's had and the hardness of the world, because that's if you listen to Scrooge's attitude, it's very much a um, survival of the fittest type attitude on a personal level. He's Scrooge is actually like a libertarian, basically. (laughs) Scrooge is a libertarian. Scrooge is just like me, myself, and I. I got to look out for me. No one else is going to do it. Everybody wants to take me. Everybody wants me to get me to give my money away, but I got to watch out for myself.
3: Prison actually. Causes this mentality to fester even further. I mean, yes, it's it's this. It, it's like because he says in one part of the novel, uh, I, I Christmas carols and, and putting coal in in the oven to keep warm. I might as well just throw money in there and light it on fire. It's uh, what's the purpose of this? I mean, it, it's 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 a waste of money. Where, these things.
4: And the line where he talks about the union workhouses and the prisons, uh, and then he says this critical line that's in practically all the movie versions when when he says, well, some would, the the, the guy says, well, some people can't go to the workhouses or the debtor prisons and some would rather die. And he says, if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus population. Well, that's, that attitude of the surplus population, that is um, Malthus, Thomas Malthus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the idea that, that, that the world is going to be, uh, come overpopulated, not from an environmental standpoint, but from just a business standpoint, that Um, the population will expand. As prosperity expands, the population will expand until there is poverty. And uh, England was certainly experiencing a population explosion because of the Industrial Revolution at the time, and that's why you had the slums and the overcrowding. So there's this very... um, Not a uh, racially kind of uh, Hitler's sort of uh, social Darwinism where he's talking about peoples struggling for existence, but a very kind of capitalistic idea of the individual struggling against other individuals. And he must, you must take care of yourself. You have to look out yourself, number one, step on people, uh, or you will get stepped on. And that's something, jazz. you know, if you go to New York, for instance, anybody that moves to New York, or cities like that where there's a lot of Jews and there's a lot of hustle and big business. Just wa-
3: walk down the fucking street. I mean.
4: Yeah, and it's why I always joke with uh, IT's uh, Mike and Stryker. I, I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's uh, you're, you guys are like, your default mode is to kind of be dicks sometimes to <laughs> people that I joke with them about that all the time because New Yorkers can, tend to be a little harder than people harder edged. I mean, all New Yorkers are this way. Uh, Then people, and people in the Northeast generally, the Northeast urban areas, they have a hard, sharp edge to them that people out in the country, out in the, you know, flyover country, Rio Rhinelander, people that are from the Andy Griffith Show America, uh, don't have. And it's not because they're born that way or it's a genetic thing or they're just mean people. It's because if you're just the nice guy, in a place like New York, uh, you're going to get screwed. You're going to get trampled on. You're going to get taken advantage of. So you have to quickly, quickly get this like hard edge uh, when you're there, if you're living there, so that you don't get screwed over by everyone trying to do it. And it doesn't help that New York has an extreme, and the Northeast generally has an extremely large Jewish population. So that it's, it's like you said, it's like a disease It spreads. If you were in a city that has a lot of Jews, that has this hard, you know, uncompromising, unromantic, lack of compassion, almost cruel, sort of just hustle, take advantage of people, screw people over eventually in order to survive. You take on those characteristics. Even if you are a, a total sweetheart uh, by nature. And that's really the idea of Scrooge. That's that's who and that's again something that is timeless because I mean God, this whole society is filled with people like that, especially in the upper middle class white people who uh, who are just careerists and climbing. Uh, you know, because it's so doggy dog out there in the world.
6: Well, yeah, and people
3: people would just be the the value of human life was just so low that people would just be ground up and and uh, you know ground to bits and move forward, and that was that. I mean, it really was that way, and. Um, you know the the Cratchit family uh, was created to illustrate sort of this like human suffering that was kind of uh, at the bottom of all of this, and that uh, would have been subjected to the you know what what's the the saying like well if they can't afford to pay the the debt or if they can't afford to eat then let them start hurry up and starve to death so the rest of us can keep on isn't that the quote that you we're we're going yeah, for it's
4: yeah, yeah. It's 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 if they would rather die, they'd better do it and decrease the surplus
3: population. That's right. Yeah. Says. Decrease the yeah. Yeah. and yeah, we know yeah. that Which Dickens, like I said is is straight Mathis, from Malthus. I mean, yeah, yeah, and we know that Dickens was was reading this as well. Um, yes. something I forgot to say at the beginning too is what's amazing about this story and it shows you that it's it's a story that is easily told by a Gentile um, is that Dickens wrote this in six weeks because October 19- 1843 is when he had the idea to write it and he wanted to get it out before Christmas, obviously, but it's, it's a great story. And he, he did the whole thing in six weeks. Um, and it was out the door and, and it became a very popular, I mean, it just took off and, and became very popular. Uh, and so there's, there's that aspect of it. Um, the uh, what was I gonna say? Because I got lost in looking at one of these articles. There's so many convincing articles out there, or not, they're not convincing, but if you don't know any better, they're convincing, written by Jews about how Scrooge is really a Jew. Um, and, <laughs> That's and funny. it's no, it's, it's hilarious because it's they're all trying to like read themselves into the redemption arc, and they do it because there isn't an overtly Christian message. Um, they, they see themselves as, as like, oh, I could be in this story, but it's like, guys, like Dickens was an anti-Semite. You, you wouldn't have been in the story. It wouldn't have been about you. There's no way that it would have been about you. Um, but there's just, there's just so many different, uh, aspects of this that are, that are really funny. I wanted
4: to make one little, uh, historical note here. That's just kind of interesting. Um, reading about the, uh, I got this from Wikipedia about Jacob Marley, but it says for the chained Marley, Dickens possibly drew on his memory of a visit to the Western Penitentiary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in March 1842, where he mm-hmm. saw and was affected by seeing fettered prisoners yes. and wondered whether they were, quote, nightly visited by specters. And actually, I've been to the spot many times. It's Allegheny Commons Park, which is this beautiful park north of the city in the north side. Um, there's a bridge and a little pond, and it's just, it's just beautiful park. Um, but that, apparently, I did not know this was the site of this notorious um prison, the western penitentiary um from it was there from eighteen twenty six to eighteen eighty and uh it was de- yeah it was demolished in eighteen eighty and there were uh, Dickens visited the city from march twentieth to twenty second eighteen forty two during his american tour and visited the prison and some scholars believe the conditions of the facility inspired elements of the classic A Christmas Carol. So that's kind of cool also that, uh, Dickens, uh, was inspired. I mean, even though that's a horrible thing, fettered prisoners, but that he had just toured America and been to Pittsburgh and got
3: some, drew some inspiration there. Um, that's pretty neat. Well, yeah, that's what I was sort of, uh, saying in the beginning is that the, it was really England where this Christmas had kind of died under this like horrific industrialization. America, was kind of 10 or 15 years behind, uh, where England would have been in 1843. But, um, by the 1850s, 1860s, America would have been moving in this direction. And so, uh, but, but America, um, would have been populated, uh, with Anglos, but also Germans. Um, and so he would have been seeing probably more of a Christmas celebration. There wasn't as much poverty in America either, um, so he would have seen more of this on his visit he he really i know i know that he really enjoyed his visits uh to america including the one that he did right before his death and and i'll take the opportunity to mention it now as much as he saw that was inspiring in his first bis- visit to america in the 1840s what he saw in his final visit to america in the 1860s 1868 after cuz he was supposed to come in 1865 or 1864 but didn't because of the Civil War and postponed the trip until 1868. Of course, he died in 1870. Um, Dickens, I encourage people to check this out because when you read about what he wrote about America, and it's hard for us to think about this in terms of a contrast, uh, but not being in America for over, what, 20 years, 25 years, uh, yeah. he, he said that America, post-Civil War, compared to what he saw in the eighteen. 18- 1842 uh, was significantly changed for the worse. Um, the country had completely wow. transformed um, and be, had become hardened and in many ways had just become just like uh, England had been um, in the days of his youth. And so I think, you know, when you see things like this occur, you know, and we can think of many examples in our current, current geopolitical situation where you see one place is behind the other, like one place is better off than the other, but the place that is better off than the other is quickly being transformed. Eastern Europe is a good example. In many ways, it's better off than, than the United States is uh, because we've been the beta test for, for homosexuality and, and uh, just the the thinkle think two-party, fake and gay dialectic and uh, Jewish capitalism and, and everything else. You know, In Eastern Europe, people own their own homes. Mortgages are, are unheard of. Uh, And, you know, the homosexuality is reviled, but that's changing very quickly. Um, And it would be like if you woke up from a coma 30 years later and were walking around in Eastern Europe and it looks just like anywhere in America. It's the same kind of feeling that Dickens had. And I think maybe he thought on his first visit to America that America, because of the distance between uh, from the ocean, that it had maybe hope at a different trajectory um, that maybe it would chart its own course. Uh, but ultimately, it didn't, um, and it it has actually ended up in many ways. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at England as the future of America, um, and in even today. So,
4: yeah, and you know, it's interesting also that one of the things that makes the Christmas Carol so relevant. Today is is that it is dealing with uh, it is dealing with industrial capitalism, which is still still the most powerful political force in the world today. I mean, arguably, like you know, Jews are more powerful, but they're they're all intertwined with it. But uh, you know, you can really like we talk about the information age, jazz, and and different. Um, Eras here, but I really believe that the information age, of the internet, is just an extension of the industrial revolution. And and I I really can, to, for me, because if I look at population size and I look at the growth of cities and I look at the explosion of of wars and everything, it's just there's the pre-industrial era and then there's the post-industrial era, and that's the big divide, you know. And one of the reasons why, um, for example, national socialism as a political idea still has relevance today. Is that it was rooted in the problems of the industrial world that are still with us today because we are still living in an industrial society. People call this a post-industrial society because it's a service economy, but it's still, it's in, it's an industrial society even if the industry is being done in China. You know, everything that we experience today is a, an outgrowth of that. So, if you look at, uh, for instance, uh, and I don't want to get too far off, but but I'll, I'll tie this back. If you look at people who uh, are libertarians, for instance, and say, well, we just need to go back to what the Founding Fathers said and the original intent of the Constitution. They are talking about a 18th century agrarian society where uh, you didn't need big government because you didn't have big business, you didn't have big populations, you didn't have big cities, big armies, and so this idea of a small government and every man, you know, free man, you know, uh, the, the yeoman farmer, that would work in a pre-industrial, mostly agrarian society, which is the society that the founding fathers lived in when the revolution happened. But Dickens is at the start of this new era, the industrial era. I found a section here talking about a Christmas carol that says that the 1840s, get this quote, were not merely hungry but hard-hearted. It was a philosophy embodied in Ebenezer Scrooge, not merely a solitary miser, but the spirit of the age, in human and arguably inhuman form. Hard heads, hard hearts, good business. Soft heads and soft hearts lead to the bankruptcy court, Scrooge would have said. Dickens disagreed. Children worked like slaves in Manchester factories. As Michael Slater points out, the chimneys in the background of John Leach's illustration of the destitute children, ignorance and want, the, the spirit of Christmas present shows him, are more reminiscent of Manchester's industrial landscape than of London streets 6 months 6 months after a christmas carol was published the 1844 factories act decreed however get this that 9 to 13 year olds could only work 9 hours a day 6 days a week this was regarded as oh a God. humane this was regarded as a humane reform why were they wanted for this work? Children were cheap labor, but more importantly, their fingers were small and dexterous. But the machines were dangerous. There were crippled Tiny Tims by the hundreds in Manchester. But think of that. The Factories Act decreed. So the reform is that 9 to 13-year-olds could only work 9 hours a day, 6 days a week. I mean, this is what the depths to which uh, capitalism had sunk uh, the British people, the English people. And this is why I always say, you know, people get upset sometimes if I, you know, you bash capitalism too much. They think, well, what are you, communist? But what people need to understand, and when we, you and I do our deep dive on Wagner, we're really going to get into this, is that socialism was an authentically Aryan impulse that was coming up as a reaction to the excesses of industrial capitalism. And it was then hijacked and subverted by Marx and Jews and turned into communism. But the Christmas Carol, you can, and the Romanticism in general as a literary and artistic movement, you can already see the beginnings of um, a kind of uh, proto-national socialism. In other words, a, a romanticized folkish socialism, meaning a reaction to the the brutal excesses of this horrible capitalistic slavery that would put nine-year-olds, nine-year-old children, working six days a week, sometimes like 12-hour workdays. I mean, Bob Cratchit works a 12-hour workday. I was reading in another book I have uh, about the transformation of Britain from 1830 to 1839, uh, about the women that were working back then in the factories that were working 15-hour days, 15-hour workdays. So, uh, so yeah, this this evil of the The inhumanity and the corruption of industrial capitalism has been something that's been with us a very, very long time and in some s- since the industrial revolution, it has been in some ways the oldest enemy It's something that predates communism uh, and and you must never people need to keep this in mind. People should read about these horror stories that Dickens was responding to that he witnessed personally that his story
3: is uh, that he personally you know, experienced. I yes, mean, that he personally n- not experience. even that he just saw. I mean, he he actually was the child laborer. He probably yeah. saw children named well, would... and children harmed, and he could have been harmed himself. I mean, we don't. He had a stroke uh, that that ended his life, but his life was not that long. Um, and was he, he 58 could you know, years old. I think. Yeah. Y- yeah. I mean, or 60, uh, 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 Yeah. Because he he li- even if he had that tough early upbringing, I mean, he he eventually was old enough. Uh, old enough, he was wealthy enough to afford doctors and whatever. So um, we don't even know if maybe he 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 died a younger death because of his exposure to these to fumes and chemicals and who knows what else. So even if people weren't maimed immediately by machines, sometimes they're they they just had a short life. And that, that hard prison, living. I don't
4: know if you if you had uh, stuff on this that you wanted to get to, but the prison, the debtor's prison that his father. Yeah, yeah, was no, in. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'll let you. Talk, yeah, about, yeah. talk about
3: the father. Yeah. Yeah. You can talk about that. That, and then I'll I'll give the history on the debtors' prisons.
4: Well, I just wanted to say that particular prison, um, which was called Marshall C, uh, was run, yeah, privately for profit, and I'll you know you can expand on this, but. Um, it said that it functioned as an extortion racket. Debtors in the 18th century who could afford the prison fees had access to a bar, shop, and restaurant and retained the crucial privilege of being allowed out during the day, which gave them a chance to earn money for their creditors. Everyone else was crammed into one of nine small rooms with dozens of others, possibly for years for the most modest of debts. In fact, his father was put in desert prison for <laughs> money he owed to a bakery. Um, I mean, that's literally like, uh, Les Miserables, you know, which is another work of, ro- of, the Romantic era, uh, you know, um, uh, Victor Hugo responding to the excesses of the rationalized uh, Enlightenment age. But, it says, the poorest face starvation and if they, because all these Unpaid prison fees accumulated, the poorest faced starvation, and if they crossed the jailers, torture with skull caps and thumbscrews. A parliamentary committee reported in 1729 that 300 inmates had starved to death within a three-month period and that 8 to 10 were dying every 24 hours in the warmer weather. Um so, this and whole families were put in. That's the other thing. Like, the kids would be put in. So, if the father goes in, the whole family goes in with him. I mean, this is just, yep. it's insane. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, Jazz, that I sometimes, people read about. People know from Reagan and, you know, Evil Empire. They know about the Soviet gulag. What about the capitalist gulag? What about the Anglo capitalist gulags that these people did to their own kind, you know, uh, during this period? Uh, this is, this is like, it's it's on a scale, and some of the stuff of it, the, the abuses that would would be everything, almost as bad as
3: anything that communism ever did, uh, is really horrible. Yeah, and well, and communism, of course, was a Jewish reaction uh, to this because they have to create this the the classical. The classical Jewish trick, right, where Jews create yeah. problems and then Jews create solutions create to the their solutions problems that, that, that are create, worse than it, the problems yes, well, exactly. It, it, that lead you that lead you away from the real solution, which is national socialism. Um, yes. And that's that's you know, that's where, you know, I've said this on the show before, but, you know, uh, somebody that I was talking to in Germany uh, said Germany didn't lose the war. We came in second. And that has a lot of different meanings. But one of the things that he meant by it, somebody in Bavaria in Western Germany, um, is that we didn't become communist like we fought, we lost, but we didn't become communist. And that that ultimately, even if they lost the the overarching fight, um, they didn't they didn't lose, at least for the time being, the, the fight for labor and workers rights, because it's a hell of a lot better than the United States, although that's what Jews are trying to take away right now. But they came in second because they didn't end up going to become communist. Um, and now, what's funny about communism as a failed uh, Jewish uh, problem solver that they came up with is that communism eventually became nationalistic and anti-Semitic, which is why they 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 shut down the Soviet Union. That's why that all came to an end because. I mean, there's a reason why Jews started leaving the Soviet Union in the 1980s in mass. Like, well, why do you think that happened? You think because it's just, you know, they wanted warmer weather or they ran out of vodka? No, that's not why.
4: Well, Mussolini, you know, in the the doctrine of fascism uh, and Giovanni Gentilia, they talked about liberalism. Liberalism, for anyone who doesn't know this, uh, liberalism is the term that was used in those days in Mussolini's time and Hitler's time. Liberalism was the word used for what we would call uh, extreme capitalism. <laughs> you know, liberalism meant uh, classical liberalism. It meant uh, you know, and now now that's where neoliberalism gets its name. Classical liberalism meaning laissez faire, uh, let the market run everything, let the let the uh, impulses, the drives of business determine the whole configuration of society, and the allocation of resources. And if you listen to uh, Mussolini and the doctrine of fascism, and and Hitler's talked about this, Goebbels, they would often say the the world of liberalism was dying, and there's even, uh, I think, a line where they say that the 19th century was the age of liberalism, and now the 20th century is going to be the age of of fascism. And uh, it's one of the big tricks of classical liberalism, capitalism, that it survived both the downfall of fascism and national socialism and also of communism in 1989 1990 1991 and so this oldest thing of you know what what Alexander Dugan would call the first three political theories i don't really consider the 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 fourth thing that he came up with is not really a thing it's just alexander dugan but if you read that book he's describing the first three pretty accurately and of his first chapter is about liberalism. And yes, it was those were like the three big ideologies of the 19th and 20th centuries. Fascism was the last. Fascism was the most advanced. Um, it was the most developed. And it's the one that we eventually, I think, do have to progress to. But if you look at what allowed the world to slide back to the brutal materialistic capitalistic liberalism that was already a problem in the 1840s. What allowed the world to slide back to that was the failure, or you could say design failure by design, of the fake Jewish alternative to it, which was communism, which played out in the second half of the 20th century. So the fact that the, the real thing that conquers this problem of capitalism or communism, you know, liberalism or socialism, the the, the answer to that problem, fascism, national socialism— was just murdered in its crib. Was not allowed to continue. Was just destroyed with bombs and bullets and, and crushed with force. And then the world is given this ultimate sort of uh, Finkel fight between of the Cold War between these two, uh, you know, kind of bad ideas, both equally Jewish. And then the mm-hmm. one is allowed to fail. And then it's like, oh wow, it looks like liberalism and capitalism is well, the answer all wa- along, you know.
3: It was. It wasn't allowed to fail. They were actually. That, I mean, ultimately, they they were looking for an a way to control people that was easier to manage because the, the yes. what they have now is not easy A-B to manage. Um, yeah. but 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 they didn't intentionally fail communism. It it, it became anti-Semitic and it became right. anti-Semitic much more quickly. Um, because it's much easier to tell who is ruling over you. And, and here, uh, with, with America as kind of the bleeding edge of all this, um, it, it's become quite obvious as well. So uh, jigs up, Jews. I mean, I just saw, uh, I guess this is a current event, but who cares? People can go look at the article anyway. There's some in Israeli intelligence report that just came out and was published on the Israeli Times uh that was saying that the world or, world order is in jeopardy It's <laughs> yes.
2: the conclusion. Yeah, yeah. it's like yeah, yeah. well
3: what's world order mean what's that a <laughs> euphemism for um so yeah it's in jeopardy because this this has been allowed to fester and has gone on and uh quite frankly there are too many gentiles living like Scrooge uh and not going home um because yes. either they're under threat they're under duress um or they think that this is the path to the messianic age or something. I'm looking at you, Mike Pence. Um, And those people, those people um, are, are almost worse than Jews. Almost not quite. Um, But really, I want to talk about the debtors prisons because I found some interesting things about this. And so debtors prisons um, was was something that emerged really in the 14th century in, in England, um, which is really kind of funny because Gee, that just seems to to work out really well with uh, the timing of uh, the return to Jews, at least formally um, in 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 England. Um, but also, it it more importantly, it aligns to some changes in Jewish law um, that really started to take place. Um, because you know, putting people in jail uh, because they didn't pay their debts—that's um, not purely a, a Jewish uh concern. Um it's it's something that has been done in other in other cultures, but but Jews are the ones that have turned this up to eleven because Jews were ultimately the ones that were the moneylenders, the financiers. Um and they say, oh, because that's all we were allowed to do, what do you expect us to do? Become middlemen, oh good. Uh but according to Jewish Jewish law, uh putting somebody in prison um, for debt is was should say was against jewish law it was um but jewish law you have to remember only applies to other jews so it was against so 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 they'll tell you that oh it's in all law that we don't do yeah the torah
4: (laughs) prescribes us from yes (laughs) yes Yes.
3: (laughs) but it's like but but you 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 do it to literally everybody else the thing they they had a problem with those money lending to each other and the evolution of, of Jews is to do money lending externally. Um, and then even if they, people within the Jewish community don't pay each other back or they fuck each other over, having a strong, close-knit ethnic community kind of prevents that from happening in the first place. Uh, but also they can afford to give each other interest-free loans and everything else because they're, they're bilking everybody else. Um, but they change their laws The Jewish laws changed. Now, if you read the Jewish virtual library on this, they make all kinds of excuses for why this happened. Um, Jews under extreme economic duress in Poland, Lithuania, and Germany, and in Russia in the 16th century. Well, gee golly, why do you think that is? Um, Because they had had really pissed everybody off, um, and they had been subjected to laws that prevented them from you know, essentially taking advantage of the local population and they're under extreme financial duress because they had built their entire communities in those places uh, on ripping people off. So, of course, things are going to get difficult for you. And so when their only profession is supposedly money lending, well, they had to change their laws so that they could be, you know, they can just do whatever they want, essentially at this point and can't it can't be called into question and the TLD, I mean, you could read deep, deep into this, but essentially they, they modified their their own law about putting people in prison for debt. And at first it was, well, we'll put people in prison who can afford to pay, but choose not to, uh, which is still kind of on the books in a lot of countries today in terms of a debt or prison. They just don't call it that. It's like people who like tax evasion um, or the tax evasion, you get put in prison, whether you could pay or can't pay. I mean, but it's the, usually the government is going to go the hardest on people who, um, who, who could pay and don't typically rappers in NFL. you see this quite common. It's like they make, they make $20 million and somehow they don't pay their taxes. It's like, all right, right. Um, put them in jail. Fine, whatever. Uh, but, um, this notion of putting somebody in prison who owes less than a hundred pounds or owes less than some small amount of money. Uh, was a concept that that Jews really started moving toward in the fifteenth and sixteenth century, and so you know you have uh, they had been banished from England officially uh, since the twelfth century and then were let back in under oliver cromwell uh, it 's no coincidence that when they get let back into England that all of a sudden this this system of of debtor prisons becomes highly commercialized, highly privatized. I mean, what's the big complaint today for prison activists? Private prisons, right? Private yes. for-profit prisons, which yes. is what is happening, what was happening at this time. What I didn't know is that this was happening in uh, the United States. Um, at first, the United States became kind of a, a place of refuge for people uh, who were trying to escape debtor prison. Um, because they, you know, it's like you, you owe us like some small amount of money and we're just going to destroy your entire life and your family. It's like, well, I'm just going to like abscond and like go to America. And a lot of people did that. Uh, and so there, it was for a while, a place of, of refuge for that because of the expense of trying to collect from those people, especially can change your name. You can go live in the, live in the wilderness, like whatever, what I didn't know, which I found very, very interesting, and I even made a note to make it kind of a deep dive that we look into, is that the state of Georgia, one of the last states in America to be founded, and interestingly enough, has a very small coastline for being on the East Coast, and that's because it's kind of a wedge that was formed in between the Carolina colony and the Florida, the Spanish-controlled uh, Florida colony. It's almost like somebody's like squeezing into a seat, is the way that Georgia looks on a map. Um, And it was founded uh, by a guy named James Oglethorpe is a famous kind of founder of Georgia. And I guess James Oglethorpe had the very similar mindset to Charles Dickens. He was anti-child labor. He was anti-debtor prison. But he was 100 years before his time because it was founded, I think, 1733, something like that. What I didn't know is that uh, Georgia was founded explicitly as not only a debtor prison free state, but a state free of child labor and also a state free
6: of slavery georgia was founded as a state that was explicitly anti-slavery and not because they liked black people but because of
3: the element of slavery a lot of indentured servitude, and a lot of reasons that people got to come to America in the first place is because they were debt slaves that were brought to America to pay off their debts in Europe, and then they're freed from their obligations. Often their passage was included in that. I mean, the idea that you have to work for seven years to pay off your passage, it's like, you know, you're working for seven years to pay off some some creditor in, in Europe. Um, but Georgia was founded on this basis. Um, and what I thought was very interesting is that Uh, It only took a few decades—not really that many decades at all, uh, actually—for Georgia to be full of debtors' prisons, fully a slave state, um, and just completely awash in like all of the Jewish uh, systems that are stood up. Um, So Oglethorpe founds Georgia to be this bastion free of all these things, and it just is consumed um, by all of it. Another thing that Oglethorpe did, which I thought was interesting, was he created a bunch of laws. To prevent conflict with the spanish to the south like intentionally created a bunch of laws to prevent conflict from the spanish but um the point of that story is that even if america was founded as and in a lot of these states and colonies were became you know had a lot of growth because of debtors trying to escape debtor prison in england um people didn't just come to america there are parts of france um that were settled by english refugees of the jewish debtor system Um, and other parts of Europe uh, that this was the case. So the the debtor system was like ground zero in Europe, but it was such a pervasive system as was slavery that the United States, by the time the Civil War took place and by the time uh, Dickens came the second time, and certainly the first time, America was filled with debtors' prisons and um, uh, one example that you can go down the list of all the famous people in America who have been put in debtors' prisons, but one of the most famous is uh Light Horse Harry Lee, the, the father of Robert E. Lee, um, was actually a wealthy man um, who at one point in his life was put into debtors' prison uh, in America. And um, it was something that Robert E. Lee, it was a reputation that he was really, throughout the rest of his life, um, it was some, something that kind of hung over his head, because it's something that's almost like you know, you're forced to read a Scarlet Letter when you're in school these days. You should really be forced to read Dickens and some of the the horror horror stories of capitalism instead of reading the horror stories of of Puritans and what they did to women who were sluts. Right? I mean, let, let's talk about what what big capital does to little children instead of what um you know what what an institution of marriage might say about a woman who sleeps around with people in the community. Right? Um, there's a reason why all these things get switched up like this, but. <clears throat> What's interesting about it uh, is that debtors prisons eventually became very unpopular, but um, you have Lighthorse Harry Lee, uh, Jesus yeah Lighthorse Harry Lee. Uh, also Robert Morris, one of the founding fathers, was put into debtors prison. He was in debt heavily to Jews um, and uh, you know, but he was also <laughs> excuse me, a financier of, of America's founding uh, ended up in debtors' prison and so it, it was an institution that uh, it was so accepted um and in the the financial system in america and in england was so uh, robust that not even people like light horse, harry lee or robert morris could escape um this this sentencing but the fact that children were put in prison when a father was locked up the children were put to work in the case of charles dickens um it's really really a horrific uh system um and it and it finally was done away with um for obvious reasons because it's just like when you put someone in prison because they owe you a debt you're you're preventing them from paying the debt so like what is your objective exactly like i mean right how how are right. they how are they able to free kind of, themselves kind, of, of, kind
4: the, of like when you're uh, you keep trying to appeal your you create a new twitter account and they and they are <laughs> now now removing you for ban evasion you know so now right. you've you've yes yeah exactly um
3: well, yeah, and, and sometimes is, uh, sometimes just one more thing yeah, about the unfairness sure. of the system is that even if people paid their debts, even if they achieved a release from their creditor, cuz that's usually what was required in order to be freed from prison. And you weren't given a sentence. You were put in prison until you could be released from that debt. Um and there was this whole like very uh very I don't know, it's a multi-tiered system cuz they had a was listening to this documentary with a guy that sounded a lot like Mark Collette. And uh, he was talking about the the pre, uh, sort of the, uh, what do they call it? Uh, before you go to prison, you go to jail, right? Like that's, it's, it's like a holding tank, pre-arraignment. Right. And then you end up in your sentence. Well, they had a thing called uh, sponging houses, um, places where people would go to become sponged. And what a sponging house was, was if they if they believed that you were able to pay a debt or had means to get into contact with somebody who could get funds to pay your debt you would be put into a sponging house and in a sponging house it was actually worse conditions often than the debtor prison itself because it was a place that was meant to sponge you of the debt that you owed so that it was it was a way of them getting out you know the problem that they faced was people who would say they would shift the debt to like their sister-in-law in some other country or some other person or, you know, they would try to discharge it. Like people trying to escape from the debt. Um, and this is a way of saying like, we know who you are and we're going to get this out of you. And you're not going to just pretend like you don't owe the money. Like there will be punishment. And it was also supposed to be kind of a foreshadow of what debtors prison would be like. So it was intended to scare the shit out of people and get them to, write a letter or get in touch with an uncle or somebody to pay their debt so that they can move on. It was a way of like extra taking people and shaking them down for the money effectively. Right. Um, right. And if they truly didn't succeed at being sponged, then that they, they were sent into the actual debtors prison. Um, but what I was right. getting at is even if they achieved the release from the creditor, oftentimes they were still not released because the warden, Um, would come up with reasons why that person, because it's a for-profit enterprise, would come up with reasons why that person hadn't settled the debts they had created while they were in prison with the prison warden. Like, you didn't pay me for all of your shackles being taken on and off. You didn't pay me for They had to pay for their own fucking food, their their shackles. Like, they were paying to stay in this place. So, yeah, really horrific set of circumstances.
4: And And a lot of people died there. It's similar to the company towns, you know, when the in the in the uh, that were all over America in the early twentieth century. You know, where, yeah, again, I always come back to West Virginia because I know it very well. But the idea of um, the company store and you have to buy your equipment, your coal mining equipment, from the company store, and you know, you you get paid in company script, which is funny money. Now, the debtor prison is more extreme than that, even, but um, but given the kind of danger that. Uh, People faced, I mean, one parallel jazz that actually has been in my mind since we've been talking about this is between Charles Dickens and Jack London. And I'm sure people who are English majors, and I have some friends who are very big uh, literature people, Uh, I am not. It's always been something that I've wanted to get deeper into. But you can see some parallels right there with Jack London and Charles Dickens, both coming from, you know, a very hard background, uh, being able to describe the brutal conditions of the working class uh, of their day and and in climb, and using writing popular novels as a way to climb out of that but then these guys never forgetting their their roots you know um but jack london you know it's hard, impossible for people to even remember uh, that there was a time when if you got an injury in one of these machines, this is a major subplot in his book *The Iron Heel* that I'm always talking about. There, there's a character who loses his arm in one of these machines. It gets caught up, and his arm gets screwed up, mangled, and then is amputated. And there's no, um, the the company pays for a really good lawyer to get out of paying this guy anything, so he can't work. And he gets no pension or com- or workers' comp. You know, <laughs> workers' comp didn't exist. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's just something to keep for people to keep in mind because we are living in a neoliberal economy. I mean, credit card debt—the holidays, credit card debt is is exploded. Um, there was a headline I saw: credit card debt balances jump 15%, highest annual leap in over 20 years
3: as Americans fall deeper into debt.
6: Oh yeah, um, I mean they have.
3: When you look at when you just do research on debtors' prisons, you'll see articles written, usually as op-eds, about the the modern debtors' prisons, like payday loans and um, you know, yeah, small these, the, the, you microfinance. Yeah.
4: In some ways, these debtor prisons aren't. They were brutal, they ne- but they in never some ways went they away. Didn't...
3: They never went away. They just became. They took on a different form.
4: Yeah, you know, if I'm I'm reading about these, like some of them are not. It's a little bit like the uh, swimming pool at Auschwitz. Some of them you know, compared to a prison today, you would think, okay, well, actually, that's not bad. You know, they can get, um, you know, they can have visitors come in and out, they can have, it's not like a prison today, where there's like a cell that you're, you know, and everything is watched, and there's guard towers. In, in some ways, it was like a whole
3: community mm-hmm. in these debtor prisons. It but, depended on where and when, because one of the big yes. things with Charles Dickens was that they would lock, in England at least, they would lock debtors up in prison with the murderers and the rapists and everybody else, and they would witness the public hangings and the executions, and people who were kind of like already on the fringe and really being pushed into poverty were learning to become criminals and learning to become, you know, like they were becoming radicalized into like an even more horrific way of life, and Dickens was like, you cannot... First of all we shouldn't be putting people in debtor's prison but more moreover like these people should not be if they're anywhere if there's punishment at all they should not be locked up with murderers um I guess he witnessed right. the public hanging and saw the reaction from the the crowd of debtors in the prison just like cheering it on like bah, go bah. and he was just like this is becoming like a cesspool and this has to stop um anyway
4: Yeah well my my, my point is just that if you read about it I don't want to diminish how brutal they were, but my point is that to someone who would look at the idea of debtor's prisons and say, well, today, thank God we don't have debtor's prisons. Oh, right. You know, yeah, we yeah. only have, we only have, uh, you know, my little, I mean, because like, for instance, it's talking about, like, this is just an example. This is from the second uh, Marshall Sea prison, which is the one that was um, built after in 1827, um, and it says, like the first marshalsea, which was existed for 300 years, the second was notoriously cramped. In 1827, 414 out of its 630 debtors were there for debts under 20 pounds, uh, consisted of a brick barracks, a yard, kitchen, public room, tap room, where debtors could drink as much beer as they wanted at five pence a pot in fifteen eighteen fifteen. So you pay for everything. And how they would discipline people is they would fine you. So again, all that is racking up your bill. It keeps you there, you know. So like here's you can get beer in prison, but the whole idea is you don't get out of prison until you pay off your debts. And uh the the, the beer that you're gonna pay for at five pence a pot is going to go up. So that's why I say there's a comparison here I wanna make between people of that time versus people today living in a cramped apartment in like New York City, you know, you're living in an apartment that's the size of a closet and you're like hustling and you got your college debt and you got your credit card debt and you're, you know, you don't even own a car or in other words, my point is the debtor's prison in some ways was more comfortable. Like you can't have beer, you can't get beer in in a prison today in America. But the idea that the person is stuck in a tiny little cramped situation where they just work and work and work endlessly to to pay off debts that they never are able to pay off. You see what I mean? That has been like, that's still a thing. We don't call it a debtor's prison, and it's not as overtly brutal. But the condition of many, 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 many Americans and people across the West is being reduced to this state. I, I told you when I was on with the uh, the Nordic resistance movement guys. I was talking with the guy from Finland and how they get five weeks paid vacation and unlimited sick days. You know, as long as you're not abusing it. If you know, if you start abusing it, then they it paid sick days. And it's just like if you compare the conditions of. Uh, you know, the social welfare benefits that they have in most European countries with the United States where you get maybe... A- or or you die a death of despair. Two years. And, and if you work for a place for 10 years, you might get three weeks paid vacation. In a sense, we already have uh debtor's prison here. It's just like home confinement debtor's prison. <laughs> you know? It's like you're going to be on home confinement debtor's prison. You're going to... Decrease the surplus population, yeah. So, uh, So. yes, again, it's, It's. you know, sometimes I see um, Jewish Hollywood will even make fun of Dicksonian uh, like workhouses and poor waifs and orphans and it becomes like a joke, you know. Um, I've seen that happen where stuff is parodied and I guess there is some humor to be found in it in a, in a kind of macabre way, you know, if you take it to an extreme degree. Um, but, the reality is like this is what this is the condition people were living in this is what led Dickens to write A Christmas Carol and we have our own soft modern version of debtors prison of the the, the treadmill and the, the workhouses and uh it, it's the world is becoming more that way because that was the other thing talking with these european guys the, the is, the treadmill, one is, of the-, is the, the treadmill is
3: the minimum wage job in yeah
4: and, and and what the one thing and and the 16 hour workday is still there with salaried employees you know? <laughs> like the people who just never never get to turn their Check phone out. off, you know yeah. The, mm-hmm. yeah, they have to be available like all week long. Um, that's what I was gonna say was that the guys over there in Finland and Iceland they're talking about how the migrants are being used these huge flux influxes of migrants in places like Sweden mm-hmm. or Norway are being used to undermine the social welfare state because we can't be giving people unlimited paid sick days and 5 weeks paid vacation if and and you know paternity leave and all this other great stuff we can't be giving that away if we have a population of lazy niggers from uh Somalia you know right, it's so that's the yeah. right conservatism so american style conservatism starts entering in and again it's just the classic kosher sandwich where the two yeah. work together to break down the social welfare benefits, to to reduce us back, to get us back to a version of this. That's what it's all about, getting us back to some version of this level of, of extreme exploitation and greed.
7: Yeah.
3: Well, and if Jews wrote a modern version of A Christmas Carol, it would be all about poor non-whites being exploited by, you know, white owners of industry captains of industry and everything else. it's just a total like obfuscation what we need is a charles dickens of our era uh to to put some of this uh to very clear uh understanding or while we are not charles dickens i mean i think a lot of us are telling stories maybe in not quite such a poetic uh sort of way but let's uh i can edit this part up. but let's let's bring it home so there was this article uh
4: from 2016, called Charles Dickens's anti-Semitism by Cecil Bloom, and uh, from the oh, spring Lord. 2016 issues of Jewish Currents, and it, uh, and the subheading, which you can talk about, is how a Jewish woman helped set him straight. But the opening of the article is very interesting. It says that jointly with Shakespeare's Shylock, Charles Dickens's Fagin is probably the best-known Jewish character in English literature and perhaps also the most repellent Fagin's portrayal in Oliver Twist as quote, "a very old shrivelled Jew whose villainous-looking and repulsive face was obscured by a quantity of matted old hair" has shined a spotlight on Dickens's attitude towards Jews and on the effect his second novel may have had on the British people's attitude towards Jews Oliver Twist his second novel appeared serially between 1837 and 39 It referred to the odious criminal Fagan as the Jew more than 250 times in its first 38 chapters. Yet by the mid 1860s, Dickens was repentant enough to suspend republication of the novel and edit its later chapters. It's later, but the first 38 already set in type went unchanged. And this action was provoked by a Jewish woman's protest, as we will describe shortly. But the thing I wanted to say in this, uh, You know, for people with Oliver Twist, you've heard me talk about David Lean's 1948 film version. Alec Guinness plays Fagan. Watch that. I tell everyone in this thing, I mean, if you're going to watch anything, uh, a a movie that features a Jewish character, track down the 1948. David Lean, who directed Oliver Twist, or um, he directed Dr. Zhivago and um, many other historical dramas, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, he did this version of Oliver Twist where Fagin is so accurately described, Jazz, as having and portrayed as having these Jewish characteristics. But it's not just the way he looks, it's the way he acts. Because Fagin basically runs a gang of of child thieves and uh, is a fence and is in all kinds of dirty business and is completely without conscience. Even the murderer in the book, Sykes, feels a twinge of conscience when in a rage he, he kills his wife uh, based on a lie that Fagin tells him. Fagin manipulates him and lies to him to get him to murder his own wife because Fagin wants the woman gone, and he figures better, you know, he's not going to do it, but he uses psychological manipulation to get the short-tempered uh, killer, Sykes, to do it for him. So you see this throughout the book, and throughout the film version, it's really clear how Fagan manipulates people, how he uses them, and finally, when he's being hauled off by the angry mob at the end, his last words to them is, he says, strike them all dead, you know, what right have you to butcher me? So, as the mob is, the torch-wielding mob is coming for the Jew, he is, uh, appealing to god yahweh to come down like uh raiders of the lost ark and melt their faces off you know like he feels Mm -hmm. no sense of like oh no you know i must i've done a terrible things and now they're he's just like how dare they how dare they these these goyim come from me the chosen one it's really terrific but uh yeah that's other than shylock it's like the most famous jew Uh, In in English literature, and it's forever will be a timeless portrayal of the nature of Jews.
3: Well, and that's one of the reasons why I think people try to read uh, Jews, Jews on to Scrooge and Jews on to Marley, um, because it's just kind of assumed that the bad guy in in his stories uh, is is a Jew. Um, But Fagin, as far as I know, doesn't get redemption and neither does the Shylock, do they? Um, Scrooge does. Is that how yeah. that story goes? So, um, but I think philo-Semitism and actually nascent to Zionism, even though Dickens himself was never a Zionist, but just sort of this, um, well, we'll just call it shape-shifting, call it what it is. Um, this this desire for Jews to try to, they realized that the way that they had to control some of the anti-Semitism in the rabble, uh, so to speak, was to get in with the elites um and that has evolved into full-blown like intermarriage and all kinds of other stuff uh that we see today but back then um any opportunity that there was to try to influence uh, raging anti-semites such as charles dickens uh they took advantage of it and you see this uh in in this case that was in the same article from the oh god the jewish kairns so in the seven years, this is from the article. In the seven years before his death in 1870, Dickens' attitude towards Jewry clearly shifted. When he left London for Gads Hill Place in Kent, a Jewish banker, James P. Davis, yeah, Jewish David, and just James P. Davis, right? Uh, his family and his family took possession of a house in Tavistock Square in 1863. Davis's wife, Eliza, wrote to Dickens soon after moving into her new home to ask for a donation. For a convalescent home for the Jewish poor, that was being created in memory of Sir Moses Montefiore's wife Judith. So she's hitting Dickens up for money. She's shaking him down. She's shaking for, him down and guilt. Yeah. Yes, she's doing
4: yeah. what they do. We're doing to Kyrie Irving. You know, it's yeah. the same exact thing. It's like, oh wow, boy, you said some really nasty. Because Oliver Twist says was been written twenty five years
3: earlier, but she's mentioning Fagin in this in this right. letter. Yes, and. You care so much about the poor, surely you would donate to the Jewish poor. I mean, it's just the retarded. It's like, but see, if Dickens was really, and it's not a criticism of Dickens, but if Dickens had the clairvoyance uh, that we do, if we could gift our knowledge onto him, he would know that, well, certainly you you Jews take good care of your own poor. Um, You don't need me to do that. And you're wealthy, so what what donations—I would would have challenged Eliza on what donations she's given to non-Jewish affairs, because I guarantee you, probably a big fat zero. Um,
6: Although Oliver Twist had been written some 25 years earlier, she used the occasion to express her concern about Fagin. It has been said, she wrote, that Charles Dickens— The large-hearted, whose works plead so eloquently and so nobly for the oppressed of his country, and who may justly claim credit for, as the fruits of his labor, the many changes for the amelioration of the condition of the poor now at work, has encouraged a vile prejudice against the despised Hebrew. Fagan, I fear, admits only of one interpretation,
3: she noted, but Dickens could...
6: Justify himself or atone for a great wrong on a whole through scattered nation, a whole though scattered nation, by making a contribution to the Judith Montefiore a, a Memorial Fund. It's like,
3: first of all, can we get Montefiore for- back from you? Because that's like just not a Jewish name either. Eliza Davis. Dickens apologized for taking 18 days to reply to her sniveling Jewish letter. He actually didn't say sniveling Jewish letter, but I'm sure that that's how it was. How is he not disgusted by this? He
6: enclosed a small donation, and he went on to deny any anti-Jewish sentiments, explaining to her that he called (laughs) Fagin. This is the wrong answer. Yeah, Fagin a Jew, not because of his religion, but because of his race, (laughs) and that quote. It unfortunately was true of the time to which the story refers that the class of criminal invariably was a Jew. Dickens further that, for that class that
4: he... of criminal so what, what yes. was th- what was he a pimp and a and a and a, a child you know a, a fence and a, a abuser of children you know uh, mm-hmm. t- intimidating little ki- orphan kids you know bringing them into his gang and making them thieves. it's like the most disgusting type of criminal and he says that that class of criminal invariably was a Jew and at, at the time at which the story <laughs> <laughs> refers Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and if he's trying to get off the hook here by saying well i called him a jew not because of his religion but because of his race it's like wow it's uh, a wrong answer like
3: it's like bro just like don't write this person back like Like, i mean now i am kind of criticizing him it's like you're you could literally leave her on the analog version of red like red or unread she'll never know like you already had not now i wonder if i wonder if the the lack of response, immediate response, was him like deciding not to respond to her and get it being disgusted by it initially and then like thinking about the fact that there could be consequences if he didn't from an increasingly like Jewish media and everything else. <laughs> we don't really know. I
4: don't know, but you see that that's the wrong answer. You know, if you're, if you, no, it's, if says, like, <laughs> yeah, it's,
3: it's hilariously the wrong answer. No, It's, it's the like, wrong answer. I'm just saying like the fact that he didn't right. respond for 18 days, you, you almost wonder if his plan was just not to respond at all. And then he doesn't even respond with a good answer, but he's like trying to come up with, he's trying, like I, I'm trying to like psychoanalyze him a little bit and think, well, something made, unless he was like, you know, indisposed, something made him decide to ultimately respond and something went into the formula of this response. And did this response, does he, is this like his, like he's, maybe he's like writing this response, thinking that this is, this could be, you know, published or put out in the well. Certainly, surely it did Chuck. That's what happened. Um, Dickens further wrote that he described a Frenchman or a Spaniard as the Roman Catholic. Oh, that had he described a Frenchman or a Spaniard as the Roman Catholic, he would have been doing a very indecent and unjustifiable thing. He would, however, depict any Chinaman as chinese i guess because racism is like more acceptable than than religious well that's
4: at least he thinks so like charles dickens when he responded to her he thought so he thought that that's like it's okay because i'm just saying he's a racial jew you know like you got to remember this is pre-hitler so uh that, that that at the time maybe that would have been a natural mistake but how about the thing that she replied to him, what she said? That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. yeah. So
3: she, re- she replied by telling him that the Jewish race and religion were inseparable. Oh, Eliza, mm. is that, excuse me, uh, is that on the record, Miss Davis? <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> yeah. Would you Can like I have to go on the record? <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. We do have it in writing um, to Charles Dixon, and, and that although she did not dispute that some receivers of stolen goods were Jews. Oh, they received stolen goods. Jesus
6: Christ. It had to be accepted that others were Christians. It has to be accepted. Some CEOs
4: happen to be. They just happen to be. But what about, is Joe Biden a Jew? Is Kamala Harris a Jew? How can Jews run the world? Is Elon Musk a Jew?
3: Some media (laughs) producers with deformed penises uh, are are not Jewish, but many of them are also named Charlie Weinstein, um, Chuck Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. There we go again with the, the misnaming of people. Um, yet there were good Christians in his novels, she noted, while the wretched Fagin stood alone as a Jew. She went on, well, maybe there are no good Jews, uh, Miss Davis. I mean, why do you, why is, is that your real name? Oh, dude, like I would have just gone ham on her. But again, that's projecting my modern, modern sensibilities on, onto Dickens. <laughs> Um, the she went on to compliment modern, yes, very modern. <laughs> yeah. She went on. She went on to compliment Sir Walter Scott and Miss S. C. Hall for their favorable portraits of Jews and their novels. Although she <laughs> accepted that Isaac of York in Ivanhoe was not all virtue. Well, why does everybody have to be portrayed in a positive light? This tells us that that you like are, you you treat any sort of criticism just like your contemporaries as some sort of like Holocaust. Um. Uh, uh, six- note to
4: self we got to do a deep dive sometime on what money sir walter scott owed to jews when he wrote ivanhoe because yes. ivanhoe we, i love the medieval period but that that subplot with the jew characters always jumps out at me whenever i i watch like a film version of ivanhoe i've never read the book and i'm just like all right, somebody was taking money from Jews here, like somebody owed money to Jews or something. I'm getting some very uh, uh, Winston Churchill esque sort of philo-Semitism here, uh, Sir
3: Walter Scott. Anyway, well, good on Dickens. So, yeah, good, good for him. Um, so, pressing forward, sixteen months later, in 1864, she wrote again to thank Dickens for his portrayal of the Jew Raya in our mutual friend, which was then being serialized. He had paid great compliment to Jews in his portrayal of Raya, she said, but she also drew attention to some misunderstandings regarding Jewish customs expressed in the story. See how it's never enough. Like he yes, then goes yes. and writes this story about how wonderful you know Jewry. Oh, let me portray a
6: Jew in a positive light. See, I'm not an anti semite. And she doesn't have a. She's like, oh, it's so wonderful what you've done. But here, are all the other things that you really fucked up, Charles, that you really need to fix immediately. Dickens yes. quickly replied, expressing the hope that he could be the best of friends with the Jewish people. Three years later, Davis wrote again to Dickens. It's like, this fuck, goddamn, this woman. I mean, if I were Dickens. I know. Wr- wrote again to Dickens and enclosed some volumes of Hebrew scripture. It's like a fucking yent, just like, oh, Charles, I just want to, oh, here's some scripture with an inscription that read, presented to Charles Dickens, Esquire, in grateful and admiring recognition of his having exercised the noblest quality man can possess that of atoning for an injury is soon as conscious of having inflicted by a Jewess. This is like this is like the Donald Trump like King of the Jews Award. It's like these little like plastic trophies that Jews give to Gentiles to like make them feel like you know, all I ever wanted was to be a friend of the Jewish people, said Charles Dickens. And it's like, here, here is a little placard that says that we are friends. It's like Jesus Christ. Dickens replied to thank her for the gift and added, There's nothing good. There's nothing but goodwill left between me and a people for whom I have a real regard and to whom I would not willfully have given an offense or done any injustice for any worldly consideration.
3: And then he wrote, um, uh, Written of the Jews All the Year Round, a weekly literary magazine, talking about them being an earnest, methodical, aspiring people. He's very much like, Ben Franklin, in a way, where Ben Franklin yes. will talk about his dream of the rabbi and the priest marching arm in arm down the street, blah, 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 blah. but in private, Ben Franklin will be like the most like raging anti-Semit that you could possibly imagine, as Borzoi and I were talking about in a recent deep dive. Um, it's it's really just that they have a public... I said this I was at dinner with some people the other night, and I said, even in the founding days of America and even in the 1860s...
6: People were already, st- people like Charles Dickens, who could be openly anti Semitic just 30 years before, were now relegated to having a public and a private position, even a position in pro- ostensibly private letters, and then mm-hmm. having a private position. Because this
3: article goes on, just to close this part out, where he makes some comment about uh, the purchase of, of a home. Ah, uh, from a Jew. This is where I got this in my head that this woman was the the person who purchased his home. It wasn't um, this this woman. Uh, he gets involved in a real estate transaction with uh, some Jews, um, but he mentions that uh, something along the lines. Uh, let's see. He says uh, this is like to to illustrate that nothing that Dickens said in these letters to Davis were real. Um, yet at the time of the sale of his Tavista, oh, he did sell the fucking house. I'll just shut up. Yet at the same time of his sale of the Tavistock house to Eliza Davis's husband, Dickens had written to a friend <laughs> during when these letters were being written. If the Jew moneylender buys, I say if, because of course I shall never believe him until he has paid me the money. <laughs> so yeah. he's, he's still doing anti-Semitism following the sale. He did an about faced letter to the same friend. Mrs. Davis appears to be a very kind and agreeable woman. And I've never had any money transaction with anyone more promptly, fairly, and considerably conducted than the purchase of the Tavistock has been. Blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, ooh, Jesus, come
7: on. Look at man. how he,
4: Cassenia Kaufman, uh, you know, Wikipedia edited his own work. This is really interesting. Uh, it says clearly Eliza Davis's entreaties prompted Dickens to make modifications to Oliver yes. Twist. Mm-hmm. In the 1867 68 edition of his works, starting with chapter 39, he removed scores of references to Fagin as the Jew and instead called him by his name or he. The title of chapter 52 was also changed to remove the description of Fagin being a Jew and there was only one reference to, quote, the Jew, unquote, in the whole chapter, although Fagin was invoked 11 times. Fagin's, quote, racial, unquote, characteristics were also subdued.
6: So obviously race,
4: made- race
3: wasn't a problem. Like, he... Because oh, yeah. it wasn't race supposed to be the bastion <laughs> of, like, oh, his... it's like, oh, I'm not anti I'm doing racism. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, then, I would... I think there's a lot a- to this story we don't know, because if he's subduing yeah. these racial characteristics, somebody schooled him on I couldn't have just been that one sentence from Eliza Davis that they're inseparable. Somebody told him what he was doing was also anti-Semitism because he. Well, suppressing Well, and it says it.
4: that Dickens also made changes to the account of Fagan's last night in the final, because Fagan is hanged at the end, in the final chapter. Originally, it was entitled, quote... The Jews last night alive, unquote, <laughs> which would make a which would make a wonderful show title if this was just a regular episode. But yeah. during which, quote, all looks were Christmas fixed to special. One... The
3: Jews last night alive. <laughs> the Jews last night alive.
4: During which, quote, all looks were fixed on one man, the Jew. He replaced the latter with Fagin. So if you're going to read Oliver Twist, don't read the 1867 edition. Read the yeah. original. Uh, what was it? 1830. Uh, Uh, 37 to 39 edition of, uh, Oliver Twist, but, uh, yeah, I I wonder what, I wonder what is the most widely published and republished version today. Well, the interesting thing is, I've never been able to stomach watching the other film versions, but I have seen uh, many other, like Richard Dreyfuss, and uh, many other uh, versions of the film where Fagin is portrayed as almost like a lovable character, um, uh, like a funny, lovable character. Which, again, watch the Alec Guinness version—holy shit! <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's it's this is so interesting, and I have to say, also, it's sort of like uh, Charles Dickens did the opposite thing of what uh, Martin Luther did. Like in the, towards the end of his life, he really softened on the Jews, you know. Like which is like Martin Luther, the opposite. Towards the end of his life is when he got the most anti-Semitic. But uh, it's funny, also, you know, it doesn't really matter. Okay, so he so first he, he he was more hard on them, and then towards his old age, he wasn't. But if you all these great guys, Voltaire, Charles Dickens, you know, so many of them, um, just the fact that they knew, they knew. They said it, even if circumstances,
3: well, you know, it's they, their they, pop. They, they Jews' were, it's a Jewish strategy is to, to, to try to turn these people when they become well known. Um, they try to
4: handle him the way they did, they try, try to handle yeah. Kanye West. Yeah, like yes. everybody else, whenever <laughs> anybody, it just shows you, you're right, Jess. It's the same exact playbook. Some Jew, like, just comes and attaches himself to Charles right. Dickens to oh, yeah. try to handle him and Any moderate him. You know? And it was a woman, yeah.
3: a woman in yes! this case, yes! to, try yes! to, to try to appeal to his, his good nature. And there's yes. an interesting parallel Freaking here Esther. with uh, A Christmas Carol where Charles Dickens would have been ripe to take his own advice, which is that, come home, Charles, come home mm-hmm. to the man that you once were maybe charles dickens later in his life needed to be visited by the the ghosts of christmas past present and future uh to show him that you know in the past when you were more correct about jews you were actually fighting the good fight and as your life went on you became very miserly with uh your anti-semitism and you were not sharing it with people you were very greedy about um, being a <laughs> philosemite, semite and um you just need to be selfless and return No, i'm serious like Come back home, white man, and that's really well, the, the the narrative is that you don't win because there's a lot of there's a lot of white people, unfortunately, who get propagandized by this, and they want to start out this way. They want to start out. See, it's kind of the opposite these days. Is people start out heavily propagandized, um, right. and and then they slowly uh, it becomes undone. It's it's actually uh, unless somebody is just totally uh, a charlatan. Um, it's actually kind of rare these days, uh, except in show business or people who are, are famous uh, or who become exceedingly wealthy, for somebody to start off as a well-known anti-Semite and then suddenly become like a cuck like this. Um, usually you're always a cuck and, or you fall off from being a cuck and you get written out of uh, the picture. As is so well, often the we have to remember
4: that, that you know even R- Richard Wagner, who's so famous for being an anti-Semite, if you look at his anti-Semitism and what he wrote and said about the Jews, it's not the kind of single-minded political focus that w- we're used to with Hitler and the National was Socialists. That an because that was yes, an evolution. That was yes, and it's because right? and it's because Jews at the time. I mean, Fagan is a real classic ghetto Jew. Uh, you know, he is not. Uh, this is you, you. You would have powerful Jews at that time, but let's face but they it, they were the unrefined. Jews are, yeah, they were. Very... Yeah, they were unrefined, and they were on the margins of society. They really were of the ghetto. Like the the, the descendants of Fagan are like the Kushner's. You know, <laughs> like they are they are out there today controlling world politics and world power. So you, so yeah, we have to be careful that we don't try to hold uh, past anti Semites. To the standards of a of a of a Goebbels or a Hitler, when when the era in which they lived, Jewish power was not nearly as strong as it became later. It was there, it was a force, and Jews were horrible and repulsive. And people, you know, artists and philosophers would look at them and and, and just be aghast. You know what Napoleon said about how the the uh, Jews of the Bible were a the, of the Old Testament were a, a horrible people cowardly and cruel you know it didn't require
3: any kind of like deep intellectual understanding because jews had not constructed this uh scheme um the history and the history wasn't very apparent either like people were aware that they had been uh you know kind of cursed and kicked out of different countries but nobody had the complete picture uh hitler is is sort of the beginning of this time when you have this high information age where people became aware of the complete picture really for the first time in in human history uh, aside from the jews themselves um who knew their own history um very well and so gentiles becoming aware of the complete picture uh were were now starting to say because it's like yeah this guy who fucked me over you know five years ago ten years ago and you know really isn't good for my country it's like okay well Maybe I just treat him like a common criminal. This is like a bad person. I don't like this type of person that's also Jewish. It's like when you understand it as kind of a, a millennia, multi millennia plot against you, um, it becomes, it takes on an entirely different format. And when Jews sort of have to evolve and refine themselves uh, and start, you know, working their way into academia and finance and even into some of the religious institutions in america uh it really takes a little bit more brain power to kind of figure this stuff out and understand what's going on that's why it's so elusive at times for people to really understand it that's why when you say no it's the jews people want to say
6: well is it always the jews or can we talk about other people i mean you really sound kind of crazy when you say it's always the jew but then it's it's
3: always the jews so um you know you eventually come to these conclusions but it takes some time to get there at this at the time of dickens it's like yeah these 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 people who identify as jews they look like jews they they have not you know started to do a whole lot of crypsis um in the in the informal sense um they were just starting to integrate with the rest of society because for before napoleon it was kind of this debate about do they stay in the ghetto do they stay a people alone do they go off back to to their home like what what do they do um and and it it was kind of decided that the only way that we survive is if we start integrating and being more and more like the people around us um, and taking on their names like Eliza Davis and taking on their customs and becoming less kosher and starting to do more influencing and like my fellow white people, you should do this and that. I mean, you didn't have, maybe, maybe there were, was that phenomenon back then, but it wouldn't have been as common because Jews were not seen as, like a Jew saying, oh, "All my fellow white people," it just like wouldn't compute with people because it's like, "What? What are you talking about? You're not. You're not one of us." What do you mean by white? Right. I mean, are right. you Protestant Are you Catholic? Like, what? What are you? Like, we don't know what you are. You're a Jew, so you can't say my fellow anything. So, um, but now that 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 flies and fools a lot of people, so it requires a different kind of intellectual capacity. But anyway, um, I think that's it. That's uh, Charles Dickens. I mean, to, to round this out. Um, it's a. I think it's one of my favorite stories about Christmas. Um, it's there. Are, you know, people will debate which version they like better. I'm impartial to the, the 1983 version on television. Uh, the Muppet version. I like the Muppets, so Muppets is pretty good too. Uh, but I, it's I think Michael Caine, is, isn't it? Hmm. Yep. Yeah, my, Michael yeah. Caine is a – you know what's funny?
4: Michael Caine actually uh, – I, I generally don't like those kind of the, – the kiddie versions, but uh, Michael Caine makes a good Scrooge. He plays that – he plays the character very straight uh, and just does – it makes it good. Um, yeah, George C. – was George C. Scott the 1983 version? Yes. Yes, the yes, great George C. Scott. So my, my favorite version is the 1951 version with Alistair Sim. And yes, it's, I've seen that one too. It's, yep. it's a terrific one. Uh, it's also just like that Oliver Twist. They kind of go together because they're both in the post-war film period. They're both kind of like film noirs. A lot of heavy uh, German expressionist photography, dark shadows. The 1951 Alistair Sim uh, Christmas Carol is almost like a horror movie. Um, some of the elements, particularly the way Jacob Marley is portrayed, is very scary stuff. But uh, yeah, great great film versions of it um even mickey's christmas carol is one that's a <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's geez. not bad it's, just, it's it's not a bad for the kids i have actually i introduced my son to the christmas carol through mickey's christmas carol cuz uh you know it's it's it has ghosts which he likes but the ghosts are goofy literally goofy is one of the ghosts and uh but yeah it's a great it's just a great story and i uh, if i uh have a moment, Jess, to just close with my thought on this. It's, mm-hmm. it's that the whole idea of Christmas, the spirit of Christmas, the spirit of Christianity, and the spirit of National Socialism all have the same basic theme, which is uh, s- uh, self-sacrifice, renouncing the self for others, uh, for the greater good, for your, the, your people— Uh, And for justice, for mercy, for God. And this is something that is so deeply baked into our racial soul. It's why our race embraced the central, the core idea of Christianity. And it's an idea that comes, you know, it repeats itself over and over again in stories like A Christmas Carol. A great modern telling of the same kind of story is uh, the film Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. It's a very similar thing where a guy who's just become like a selfish prick, learns to think of others and care about others again, and through that finds redemption and love and happiness. Um, And I wanted to just say about this, remind people that Adolf Hitler says in his book Mein Kampf, in his big famous chapter, Nation and Race, where he really goes hard on the Jews, when he's talking about white people, he says this very interesting thing that with the Aryan, It was not uh, his intellectual abilities that made him great. Uh, He had that, but he says, above all, it was his uh, will to sacrifice. And he says that, this is what he says, the will to sacrifice in staking his personal labor, and if necessary, his own life for others, is most powerfully developed in the Aryan. He is the greatest, not in his mental capacities per se, but in the extent to which he is ready to put all his abilities at the service of the community. With him, the instinct of self-preservation has reached the most noble form because he willingly subjects his own ego to the life of the community, and if the hour should require it, he also sacrifices it. Not in the intellectual abilities lies the Aryan's culture-creating and building ability. If he had only these... He would always be able to work only destructively, but in no case organizingly, for the innermost nature of all organization is based just on the fact that the individual renounces representing his personal opinion and his interests, and sacrifices both in favor of a majority of people. Only by way of the general community is his share returned to him. Now, for instance, he no longer works directly for himself, but with his activity he joins in the frame of the community. Not only for his own advantage, but for that of all. Uh, that idea is the final, like, message that A Christmas Carol ends off with. You know, with Scrooge and taking care of Tiny Tim and helping out and, and being good to the people around him. And so, like I said, this there's a a wonderful uh, sort of a resonance here with this this central theme, and it's something to keep in mind at Christmas. And throughout the rest of the year, because it not only informs religion and uh, holidays, but it informs our politics and our worldview.
3: It does. Yes. And this is, this story I think is, is also important and it ties in with, uh, with Nazism as well, uh, because of the speech that, that Hitler gave, uh, in 1921, uh, at a Munich beer hall, unfortunately they have, a, they, these are very well documented. These speeches, I, we had a really hard time finding, um, all of the details on, on all of these speeches, uh, because some of them, I think the early speeches, Warren, correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't have a lot of, I mean, some of them were just undocumented because they were so early. Um, yes. In, a lot of in the, the early, uh, very
4: early ones. Yeah. There's no, no transcripts of
3: yeah, well, he gave this speech uh, about Christmas uh, in the Hofbrauhaus um, in in Munich. Uh, according to observers, uh, there were 4,000 supporters in the room, and it's Hofbrauhaus is big if you've never been there in, in Munich, so it definitely can hold that many people, although it would be very uh, very cramped, but I'm sure a very joyous uh, occasion on Christmas. He said... Uh, one part of the speech that is reported, although we don't have record of this, it says, he says, the cowardly Jews for breaking the world liberator on the cross, and he swore not to rest until the Jews lay shattered on the ground. Uh, later, the crowd sang holiday carols, nationalist hymns around a Christmas tree, and working class attendees received charitable gifts. I have seen uh, many, many pictures of uh, Nazis in uniform uh, preparing uh, goodwill packages and, and food for uh German families on the holidays uh very similar to what NJP has done with Operation White Christmas very successfully by the way um and oh, yeah. so <clears throat> this this notion of charity and helping out uh the poor uh, has been ingrained it's not just something that the nazis decide to do to try to put out good pr this is they they genuinely cared about these people and Unfortunately, because of the Weimar Republic uh, and the cancer of of Jewish power in Germany, um, there were a lot of poor people and a lot of people uh, suffering and in destitution um, that they were trying to help. And so um, the Nazis uh, were just as Scrooge, um, the Christmas Carol and everything else led to kind of a renaissance of Christmas in Germany. England at the time that Charles Dickens wrote the story, uh, contrary to what Jews will tell you, um, Hitler and Nazism, because they were tapping into uh, Germanic aspects of the holiday, um, such as the Christmas tree and the candles and all, you know, everybody. I mean, it's not anti-Christian to point out that a lot of the symbolism that we see with Christmas from the Christmas tree to the colors of red and green to lighting of candles. A lot of that has to do with things that long predate Christianity. Um, and they were ways that people were celebrating this time of the year with Yule long before uh, Christmas became the, the official holiday. And so um, the Nazis, because that was inherently German. Um, brought a lot of that back, made that a central theme. And you can see, I mean, all these beautiful pictures of these Nazi Christmas parties um, that were held, including Hitler um, holding them. And so all these lies that people have been told about uh, the the Nazis um, essentially canceling Christmas, right? Because whenever, whenever, of course, because there's a modern movement, right? You know, of of people trying to cancel Christmas and the war on Christmas has been kind of a, a thing that people are very aware of now, if you say war on Christmas, somebody they know what that means. They know that that means that all of the Happy like holidays. Is, yes. Christ yeah. has been removed from everything. All the shit comes out in the big box stores and then it's all put away. Um, you know, I've pointed out that on a uh, satellite radio, literally at midnight on December 25th, uh, it, it, it switches back to like all the normal channels. Like they literally turn <laughs> right. all of that stuff off and it's like, there's 12 days of Christmas and, um, you know, it's not like people, people just take down the menorah, you know, in the, the, the menorah that everybody feels like under duress to put up alongside the Christmas tree. Uh, you know, it's like, take, take Christ out of Christmas, but we have to put a menorah next to the Christmas tree, even though the menorah is like this religious symbol, actually a religious symbol. Um, it's, it's insane. It's like, well, why not take down the menorah after one night? Cause you have eight nights. so okay, we have 12 days of Christmas. Keep that stuff open until, until January 6th. Piece of the epiphany. Christmas isn't over until then. And in, in then, and then as you keep the tree up long after that, I think that's great. Um, and there's no rule that says, all right, January 6th, take, take all the crap down. I think it's actually nice to leave it up. Um, but point being is that, uh, this, this resurgence of Christmas in England and resurgence of Christmas in Germany, um, with, with the Nazis, were both inherently Germanic traditions that influenced it. Um, because you couldn't have had, I mean, Christmas Carol would have been popular, but it was even more popular because of this resurgence uh, of it because of the, the House of Windsor marrying into the German family line. Um, so I think that's important when you recall your roots, uh, putting the Christ back in Christmas. Uh, there's also uh, putting the Germanic traditions back in Christmas as well. Um, and it's inherently a racial holiday. Santa Claus, yes. Cr- Chris Kringle, um, St. Nicholas, like this is inherently a white holiday. Um, and and yeah, happy holidays is just diluting it. Would you drink? Would you buy a brand new cup of coffee and, and just fill it up with a gallon of water? No it's like well and we as, always, it as always yeah as
4: always the, uh, the, the the greatest danger is not uh with christmas you know the conservative misses the, the politically correct atheist liberal on a on a with an axe to grind and a chip on their shoulder is far less threatening to christmas than the uh, Jew fake tree merchant, you know, or the credit card, you know, uh, owner who wants to uh, basically turn Christmas into an orgy of commercialism and materialism yeah. and debt. And debt then, too. They're just laughing all the way to the bank when they're like, ah, oh, you stupid goy, you know, you went into credit card debt to uh, have your Christmas. Um, yeah, it's, no, it's, you're absolutely right. Christmas is, uh, if if there's like one holiday that the Germans really do, right. It's Christmas, um, so the inherent Germanness of the the European style of, of Christmas and and uh, the Germanic origins of the way we celebrate Christmas—it's just a wonderful unity of uh, our our religious cultural traditions and our racial, you know, origins. The pine tree and everything else, and yes, the Nazis did Christmas like nobody else, like like the Germans do. So uh, revel in the. In the based Germanness and Aryan-ness of Christmas, uh, as well as uh, the, the the message of of you know thinking of others and of thinking out of the self and of kindness and of compassion and generosity.
3: And why do you think that you know Jews have been so um, hostile toward the holiday? I mean, some of it has to do with with the birth of Christ. I mean, obviously. But there's also what is a major driver of their their hatred for the holidays, because it is inherently a white German uh, racialized holiday um, that that for a very long time, especially in Nazi Germany, it's for Aryans only. Like this is this is exclusive to to us. This is our thing. It's not your thing. It's not it's not open to you. So um, I think it's I think it's pretty clear. And, you know, the, the Hanukkah itself, you could do a deep dive on that. That's a fake holiday, just like Kwanzaa. Like all this shit's fake. Like Hanukkah didn't exist um, until very recently. Um, And this notion that it's like the holiday of lights—it's like no, that's lighting a Christmas tree. It's a Germanic tradition of of uh, putting on lights after the shortest day of the year. It's part of Yule. Like your your like candelabra of lights is just bullshit. Like it's trying to encroach. Like we don't want. We don't want you to be a part of the holiday, and we don't want you to copy the holiday and dilute it with your own Jewish bullshit. So, I mean, that's that's basically where it be. So, remember where you came from. If I were to say one yes. thing to to cap out the episode, would be like, "Come home, white man. You can always come home. Come home to the type of mannerisms and behaviors that that Scrooge espoused at the end of uh, end of A Christmas Carol, uh, and come home to the type of sentiments that." That our wonderful leader Adolf Hitler uh, expressed in his 1921 speech in a beer hall, and I can close my eyes right now and imagine just having a nice tall cold flagon of Löwenbräu Keller, uh, Löwenbräu <laughs> in the Löwenbräu Keller, um, no doubt. So, anyways, <laughs> yes. f- surrounded by good friends and um, and your your white racial coethnics, it's the best way to put it. So, Merry Christmas to everybody. Uh, stay tuned. After this short break, for many more hours of FTN Christmas, right after this. Happy Yule and Merry Christmas. Antelope Hill Publishing is bringing you new books every month, covering a variety of topics to continue expanding our people's cultural horizons. Scott Howard, acclaimed author of the Transgender Industrial Complex and the Open Society Playbook, is back with a deep dive into the controversy surrounding COVID-19, the World Economic Forum, and the so-called Great Reset. In his new book, The Plot Against Humanity, from the desk of the Raw Egg Nationalist, there's the 2022 Annual Collection of Man's World. And a coffee table-sized hardback filled with full-color images and excellent articles about culture, art, health, and more. Last but not least, 21st century adventurer extraordinaire Miles Rutledge has released his tell-all book entitled Lord Miles in Afghanistan. The story of his harrowing escapade in Kabul as the U.S. military pulled out and the Taliban made their triumphal return adds another wonderful chapter to the legacy of brave European adventurers in the Wild Orient. Antelope Hill is proud to offer you all of these works and more made possible by the tremendous talents of a wide variety of contributors from across the dissident cultural landscape and available for purchase at antelopehillpublishing.com.
0: For the third year in a row, the National Justice Party is proud to conduct Operation White Christmas. We coordinate and facilitate gifts for needy white families for Christmas and Yule. If you're one of these families, please email us at Christmas at ProtonMail.com. We'll ask you a few questions, have you build an Amazon wish list? we'll copy it to an anonymous account, have you approve it, and then we publish the list for people to purchase. The anonymous account protects your name and address, and gifts purchased via Amazon registry can be purchased anonymously. This protects everyone's information and is logistically simple. It also means that the NJP does not have to take money from anyone, so there's no question as to what we're doing, and it means that the amount of money available for assistance is virtually unlimited. If you are one of these families or know one of these families, please reach out. Thank you, and have a Merry Christmas and a Happy Yule.
7: Hello
3: and Merry Christmas. This is Jazz Hands McFeels. I'm joined by James Alsop. We're here to do a deep dive into the story of the truce between British and German soldiers in the early stages of World War One, made possible only by a millennia of our shared history, heritage, culture, blood, and ultimately our destiny. This is the story of Wynox Frieden, which is the Christmas truce of 1914, We're going to tell this story and uh, Merry Christmas from FTN to
5: all of our listeners and your families and you as well, James. Yes, Merry Christmas to you and of course to our listeners. Thank you for taking time out of your, I'm sure, busy Christmas holiday and spending it with us and hopefully get a very comfy history lesson here as well. A very fascinating history that you're probably not taught in schools, not going to be shown in the media but one that is definitely essential to know. we have kind of a brief overview of the
3: situation during the initial months of the Great War, also known as World War 1. It was initially a war of maneuver and this is a war that uh, World War 1, World War 2 very deep rich uh, history, especially uh, what led up to World War 1, the interwar period and in World War 2 and that those are going to be the subjects of future deep dives, but for the specific uh, story today with the truce, just sort of giving some background here, there were Uh, a number of large battles uh, from August to November of 1914, and there had been an almost complete turnover of the British Expeditionary Force, otherwise known as the BEF, personnel from August to December. A vast majority of those soldiers and men either experienced, uh, who were inexperienced conscripts or overage retreads. Uh, There was inadequate artillery, grenades uh, for the BEF, and the BEF were also junior partners to the French and the Belgians. The French high command was fixated on reclaiming Alsace-Lorraine, lost in 1870, little or no interest in innovative strategies intended to win the war without regard to immediate territorial gains. There was a strong move toward centralization of all of the command initiative and BEF units were unable to take the initiative. This would persist until 1918 And you had the traditional operational flexibility of the British Army Army was finally restored as a reaction uh, to the German push. Central powers had relatively short interior lines and could move forces around as needed without overly weakening any sector. And the central powers then went on the defensive, uh, flanking movements in what was known as a race to the sea, settling into the trenches. The Allies had no choice but to conform to this new war strategy. This was the first war with such immediate and overwhelming communications with the home front. There were major charity drives to ensure that every soldier on both sides got cards, letters, and some kind of treat in the mail. In Britain, Princess Mary led an immensely successful charity appeal, packing boxes of treats for the men at the front herself, alongside a large number of volunteers. Sir John French, the commander-in-chief of the BEF, asked his wife, Lady French, to help organize charity for BEF soldiers as well. She led a volunteer effort to knit 250,000 mufflers and distribute them to the troops. The Wincarnis Drinks Company pledged to send every man a French phrasebook for communications with their allies. The Surrey Mail made a public appeal for a tobacco fund to send cigarettes and pipe tobacco to the men in the trenches. In Germany, companies, private clubs, and charitable associations all worked to raise funds to send comforts such as sausage, beer, waterproof boots, and so forth to their soldiers in the trenches. The Duke of Württemberg distributed packs of cigarettes and copies of an autographed photograph of himself to the troops. The Kaiser's son, Crown Prince Wilhelm of Prussia, donated commemorative and functional pipes bearing his image. German companies and charitable associations even made sure that masses of small Christmas trees, most in the three to four foot range, and candles were shipped to their soldiers at the front. Devastatingly stupid Allied tactics at the Battle of Yeeps in Flanders yielded huge casualties, rage against the BEF leadership, Imperial General Staff, and fuck. The battle raged from October 19th to November 22nd, 1914, and this became quickly bogged down into a war of attrition punctuated by fruitless raids against prepared positions, no organized overall command structure for the allied forces, continued attacks by the central powers against highly defensible positions at Langmark led to 70% casualties, so on and so forth. This continues. Morale takes a nosedive. Troops were engaged in shaping the trenches into frontline barracks, a pattern that would continue for the next four years. Ennui, coupled with dirt Mud, rain, and doubts about the whole shooting match. Horrible, filthy conditions prevailed in the trenches. You had mud, rotting trash, human waste, pieces of corpses, etc. 1,500 British soldiers died of complications from infections caused by trench foot in the first five months of the war. You also had constant rain and as the year wore on snow, which made it very difficult to achieve any reasonable level of sanitation. Troops would go to sleep relatively dry, only to wake up soaked to the skin in cold water, and saturated in mud and crawling with lice. In the German trenches in the Flanders area, water was often waist-high due to inadequate drainage. Many of the ordinary soldiers felt a growing conviction that this isn't what they signed up for. No chance for glory, no real idea why they were fighting, once they'd arrived on the battlefield and seen the reality of the situation. Novelty was at a premium. Anything to relieve the tedium was welcome.
5: After First Eaps, both the Allied and Central Power High Commands paused the operational tempo of the war effort to analyze what had led to the current stalemate and try to figure out a way around it. Further skirmishes took place at places across the entire front in December, but the weather militated against it, even as military leadership took stock of the situation in order to determine how best to proceed at the strategic level. During the skirmishing, which took place between the 14th of December and the 21st of December of 1914, there had been a few instances of local truces being made to recover the wounded and the dead from the no-man's land between the trenches, repair fortifications, etc. There were unofficial truces. Sometimes higher authority were aware of it, but winked at it. In other cases, the military leadership came down hard against such fraternization with the enemy. Just before Christmas of 1914, the weather changed drastically, literally overnight. The endless rain and flooding stopped, the temperature dropped, leading to snow, and and then a hard freeze. This was a huge blessing to the troops, as they no longer had to wallow through wet mud and didn't worry about being suffocated when sections of waterlogged trenches collapsed, which happened numerous times and was an awful way to die. And then, on Christmas Eve 1914, starting from the widely separated areas where the fighting had been temporarily suspended earlier in the month, a series of spontaneous local outbreaks of peace and goodwill spread across the central front of the BEF, 3rd and 4th Corps. None of this had been planned or coordinated in advance. There were no regulations on either side to deal with such a situation. In point of fact, both British and German senior officers had issued injunctions against fraternization with the enemy, which was punishable by death in both armies. But many of the men and the junior officers in many areas along the front seemingly collectively felt a kinship for their opposite numbers. Ordinary men like themselves, far from home, and in the spirit of the season reached out in response to the humanity demonstrated by their supposed enemies. During the constant barrage of propaganda, ordinary German soldiers felt no hatred for the British, and British soldiers themselves couldn't figure out how fighting to retrieve some Belgian and French fields and cabbage patches from the Germans was any business of theirs in the first place. This was, in fact, the main justification for the flurry of small attacks in mid to late December. The British high command were deliberately trying to stoke hatred and bad blood between the Tommies and the Fritzes, in order to forestall any further fraternization and good feeling beyond what had already sporadically occurred across the front. Here are some of the stories of these men. The 15th Brigade Division, 5th Division 2nd, Corps of the BEF in Messines. Quote, On the afternoon of Christmas Day, 1914, opposite Sector B, a large number of Germans and our men met halfway between the trenches and fraternized. Their uniform badges show the Germans to belong to Schulenburg's Landwehr Brigade. Brigadier Count Edward Gleichen, I beg to report that an informal meeting took place yesterday between the lines of the trenches of ourselves and the Germans, at which about 200 of our men assisted, and an even larger number of Germans. About 2 p.m. on Christmas Day, a German officer, or NCO, appeared and walked over to our trenches, holding up a box of cigars. He was not fired at, and one or two of our men went to meet him. Others, Germans and Englishmen, chimed in, And soon, there were a large number in the space between the trenches, nearer the German ones than ours, talking and fraternizing and accepting one another's cigars and cigarettes, etc. Most of the Norfolks and some of the Cheshires from the fire trenches took part in this informal gathering, including several officers. I might add that the men sung Christmas hymns together in their own language. P.S. The Germans stated that they were not taking any action by fire or otherwise from 25th to 27th instant. I have, however... ...ordered hostilities to proceed as usual. From the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment of the Imperial German Army, same sector, Private Joseph Wenzel... ...that which only hours ago I should have thought was nonsense, I saw with my own eyes. A British soldier, who was then joined by a second man, came from our left and crossed more than halfway into no man's land, where they met up with our men. British and Bavarians, previously the worst of enemies, stood shaking hands and exchanging items... The one star still in the sky above them was regarded by the men as a special sign from heaven. More and more joined in, all along the line, shaking hands and swapping souvenirs. More than half my platoon went out. Because I wanted to take a closer look at these chaps and obtain a souvenir, I moved towards a group of them. Immediately, one of them came up to me, shook my hand, and gave me some cigarettes. Another gave me a handkerchief. A third signed his name in a field postcard, and a fourth wrote his address in my field notebook. Everyone mingled and conversed to the best of their ability. One British soldier played the harmonica of a German comrade. Some danced around, whilst others took great pride in trying on the German helmets. One of our men placed a Christmas tree in the middle, pulled out a box of matches from his pocket, and in no time the tree was lit up. The British sang a Christmas carol, and we followed this up with Silent Night, Holy Night. It was a moving moment. Between the trenches stood the most bitter and hated enemies and sang Christmas carols together. All my life I shall never forget that night, Christmas 1914, will be completely unforgettable. These scenes repeated themselves throughout the central sectors of the front. In most cases, the Germans were the first to indicate a willingness to set aside their differences and have a truce. The British soldiers enthusiastically agreed and got into the spirit. While the Germans had chocolate and tobacco, many of them were short on rations. The BEF soldiers had an abundance of corned beef in tins, it was called bully beef, and the Germans were wild for it prizing it above all other items to be exchanged. More than one British soldier was able to corral enough tins of bully beef to trade in exchange for German pickle the iconic German helmets with the big spike on top. Many of the British soldiers were envious of the waterproof gumboots, otherwise known as Wellingtons, that the Germans seemed to have as part of their standard kit, and traded for those as well. It turned out that far more of the Germans spoke English than British who spoke German. In fact, many of the Germans had worked and lived in England as waiters and cabbies. Some of them even had sweethearts and even wives in Britain. On the 23rd of December, a company of the Royal Berkshire Regiment relaxed their suspicions enough to invite some of the opposing German troops to come over for a visit. They chatted, joked, and laughed, and exchanged cigars and cigarettes, and one of the Germans remarked that he hoped the war would end soon, so he could return to his job as a taxi driver in Birmingham. On at least one verified occasion, a football or soccer match took place between the German and British soldiers on Christmas Day. The final score was 3-2 in favor of the Germans. Several other groups of fraternizing soldiers wanted to play football with their opposite numbers, but either didn't have anything suitable to use for a ball or were forbidden to do so by their officers. Nearly all the Germans who participated in the truce were Saxons, Bavarians, Hessians, and Westphalians. Almost all of the Prussians were deployed in the East against the Russians. In many cases, they stated that they felt an affinity for the Britons, that they were being made to fight, and they wished everyone could just go home and be friends again. The German insistence on celebrating Christmas and honoring the spirit of peace symbolized by their Christmas trees and carols was shocking to many British soldiers who had been bombarded with false propaganda, images of the Huns as bestial baby killers. At first, they couldn't believe that their supposed enemies were just as human as they and had a real desire to establish Brüderschaft, Brotherhood in English, across the lines and in defiance of the politicians, manipulators, and usurers who had driven them into war against one another in the first place. There were far fewer cases of intermingling between the French and Belgian soldiers and the Germans. Generally speaking, there was no such feeling of kinship, and indeed a great hatred and bitterness between their peoples. Nevertheless, some notable instances of camaraderie and goodwill took place in Flanders between the French and Belgians on one side and the Germans on the other. Most of the young who were opposed to the truces were young, enthusiastic officers and enlisted men on both sides. One young corporal of the 16th Bavarian Reserve Infantry Regiment was especially taken aback. Such a thing should not happen in wartime, he scolded his fellow officers. Have you no German sense of honor left? Much later, he would end up reaching out to the British, once he'd realized they were both fighting a common enemy and should be cooperating against their mutual alien foes, rather than opposing one another in a senseless war of fratricide. But at the time of the Christmas truce, he was only 25 years old, so we'll cut him a break. Many of the local truces began with the British and German soldiers alternating in singing Christmas carols back and forth to one another across the no-man's-land between the trenches, with the British stunned and amazed to see candlelit Christmas trees appearing at the edges of the German trenches. And as they realized they had far more in common than the differences between them, their shared sense of camaraderie and goodwill gave them the courage to trust one another for a moment amidst all the carnage and horror of the war, and to see one another as human beings, rather than as slavering monsters. The local truces often began with Germans singing Still a Nacht, their version of Silent Night. Then the British troops would sing Silent Night in English, with many of the Germans who knew English joining in the song with them. The Germans also sang O Tannenbaum, or O Christmas Tree. The British and Germans sang it together in English, often to the accompaniment of a harmonica. Hark the herald angel sing, O come all ye faithful, Good King Wenceslas and in Dulcy Jubilo were also popular with soldiers from both armies. Many of the Germans tried out English standards like Tipperary, There's No Place Like Home, and Mademoiselle from Armentieres, often to the amusement of the British. A German cornet virtuoso, who is probably well-known, played across the lines in one sector. In another, a French harmonica player broke the silence with his rendition of Still Nacht, And a German violinist, who had somehow miraculously transported his instrument to the front and kept it in working order, serenaded the French troops in the next trench over with Handel's Largo. In Flanders, near the Polygon Wood, Belgian soldiers reported hearing a French soldier with a wonderful tenor voice singing Minuet, Chatien's C'est le Heer Solennel, <laughs> the French version of Silent Night, and a performance that left both sides odd and dead silent when he had finished. This was Victor Granier of the Paris Opera just another singer serving in the trenches with his countrymen on that fateful Christmas Eve. Most of the local truces held until Boxing Day, December 26th or December 27th at the latest. Many of the troops would reluctantly signal a resumption of hostilities by firing into the air, so as to let their counterparts across the way know that it was back to business as usual. On some occasions, the Germans warned British troops of scheduled artillery barrages so they could take cover in advance. As the war was resumed in earnest.
8: Good evening. Do you speak English? Yes, a little. Wonderful. Uh, We were talking about a a ceasefire for Christmas Eve. What do you think? The outcome of this war won't be decided tonight. I don't think anyone would criticize us for laying down our rifles on Christmas Eve. Don't worry,
9: it is just for tonight.
8: Merry Christmas. Uh, Frohe Weihnachten.
0: Schöne
9: hey, Welcher Idiot ist denn auf die?
3: The Great War ground on for another four years, costing more than 30 million lives and ripping apart the fabric of Western European civilization for all time. A few local truces were held from time to time during the remainder of the conflict, but nothing on the scale of the Christmas Armistice of 1914. During subsequent conflicts, the senior officers on both sides ensured that there weren't opportunities for fraternization between opposing forces. The evolution from static trench warfare into mechanized mobile warfare, fought at speed and often at longer distances, also played a part in dehumanizing the enemy on the battlefield. And yet, during the most destructive war, which had taken place on the European continent to date, men of goodwill who recognized the kinship they shared with their nominal enemies across the way were able to call a halt to the bloodshed for a brief while and engage in fellowship and good cheer with men they'd much rather befriend than kill. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle of Sherlock Holmes wrote that the British and German soldiers had found a sudden and extraordinary link in that ancient tree worship, long anterior to Christianity which Saxon tribes had practiced in the depths of Germanic forests and still commemorated by their candlelit fir trees. It was an amazing spectacle and must arouse bitter thought concerning those high-born conspirators against the peace of the world, who in their mad ambition had hounded such men to take each other by the throat rather than by the hand. Doyle was alluding to the centrality of sacred trees and groves in ancient Germanic religious rituals dating back to the pre-Christian era, The Roman historian Tacitus tells us that the pre-Christian Germanic tribes worship their gods in groves rather than in temples. In his Germania, written in 98 AD, he said that the tribes consecrate woods and groves and they apply the name of gods to that mysterious presence which they see only with the eye of devotion. He described a grove sacred to the Germanic Semnonus tribe, a chaste grove dedicated to the goddess Nerthus, other contemporary Roman writers reported near identical rites associated with particular sacred trees and groves. In his Annals of the Roman Empire, written from 100 to 119 AD, Tacitus describes how in 9 AD, the Cherusci, tribe ritually sacrificed 900 Roman legionaries who had survived the battle of the Teutoburger Wald in a secret in a sacred clearing in the Teutoburger forest. The German tradition of tree worship spread across Europe and Great Britain and eventually across the Atlantic Ocean to North America, becoming a universal symbol of the Christmas season. Unsurprisingly, some so-called historians have tried to downplay or even deny entirely that the Christmas Armistice of 1914 ever took place at all. Many of this faction accede to the reality that the spontaneous truces across the Western Front But fixate in a very odd and strange way on the football match played by British and German troops near Messines in Belgium, denying that it ever took place at all. This notion is ludicrous on its face. There are numerous written accounts, drawings, and even photographs of scenes from the armistice as a whole, which were published contemporaneously and which we can read and view today. Many surviving veterans were interviewed on BBC television in the 60s and gave their first-hand accounts on video. There are far too many detailed factually consistent accounts of the Christmas armistice for it to be a hoax or a myth of some kind. In particular, one almost certainly Jewish female historian named Terry Blom Croker wrote a book which grudgingly admitted that some local temporary truces had taken place, but ensured the reader and hit the reader over the head with her disapproval of British soldiers consorting with demonic Germans rather than doing their best to kill them. She especially sought to puncture the myth of a football match being played between British and German troops during the Christmas armistice. Of course, the latest letter from a BEF soldier to his family detailing the Christmas football match between the German and British soldiers was uncovered in 2014, a full year before she wrote an article in the New Republic claiming it hadn't taken place, despite numerous contemporaneous reports. Those who tried to deny the reality of what took place are the same ones will do and say anything to try to rob us of our identity as a people. They seek to demoralize us, divide us, but we know better, and the truth has triumphed over their lies and deceptions. There's an important lesson here for us today. We must no longer allow hostile Jewish interests to goad us into pointless conflicts with those who are in actuality our comrades in the great struggle against those who seek to besmirch the achievements of our ancestors and deny the great achievements of the civilization they built and even to obliterate our very identity as a people. Instead, we must embrace our brothers and work together to oppose our common enemies for our mutual benefit and for the sake of our descendants. These good, decent men of a century ago showed us that there is a better way, even in the face of overwhelming pressure from Jewish power and their adjacents who seek to destroy us. And so, from all of us here at FTN, we wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Gonna talk about the uh, we're going to talk about the fake Christmas tree Jew uh, <laughs> that the the Yahoo News written by Lori Gwen Shapiro uh, has been putting out there it 's actually not Yahoo News. this is the New York Times Yahoo News is just uh, uh agreeing and amplifying it would seem that you found this <laughs> uh, Warren and, and found some interesting uh components about this uh very old uh nazi war hero uh nazi war hero jesus christ uh jewish war hero in america i don't know why i said nazi war hero um definitely not a nazi war hero this guy is a despicable a piece of shit that is somehow still alive at 97 years old (laughs) yeah so yeah
4: this uh so this story i forget how i found this i think you know i run once in a while i go through google news and i search various search terms to just see what's being said. And once in a while, I'll search the word Nazi and just see what the media is talking about. And I think that's how I came across this. Um, And just by the headline, it's funny, even the headline, I uh, knew right away that this was going to be a Jew. And I kind of figured what the the shot would be like right away when I read the headline. But uh, it was actually worse than I thought. Because, you know, the thing that really got me was... Okay, so first he bombed the Nazis, but then the thing he modernized Christmas. Wait, what? Modernized Christmas? Like that's an interesting choice of
3: you know. So it, yes, it, it's in need of modernization.
4: It yeah, is just too yeah.
3: old and out of date. Yes. I
4: mean, what a way to put it. Anyway, so I mean, I think, you know, you could say that that's what uh, uh, what's her name uh, Santa Inc is doing. It's just modernizing it for the for the modern world. But yeah, I, we don't have to spend too much time on this. I'll just say, Laurie Shapiro. I, I my takeaway from this article was that the Jews are really losing it. I mean, that the fact that they would publish something like this that's so uh, just kind of giving the game away and and so self referential and self congratulatory, like one Jew uh, fanning the balls of another Jew who is like a a, a horrible like anti white. Uh, nasty piece of shit, who then went and profited off Christmas. So just the highlights of the article, and I posted this on my Telegram, is that, uh, as they say, Cy Spiegel, okay, that was his name, uh, he was part of an allied raid on Berlin, uh, his bomber dropping its payload over the German capital, and uh, tells the story of how his his... Plane was hit with flak, and he had to. His thought was, "Got to get behind the Soviet lines, you know, because we'll be safe in this in, in behind the Soviet lines." Which is what he did. And he was talking about how he's a Jewish pilot, born in New York City in 1924, and they, of course, like all Jews in New York in the in the 30s, was a big uh, Roosevelt supporter. It said that his family would crowd around the radio, especially whenever the president gave an address. Roosevelt, he said, was our hero. Uh, you skip ahead in the article because you think, okay, well, he was he was part of a bomber crew over Berlin. Well, um, was he conscious of the fact that they were bombing civilians? Well, it turns out he was. Uh, at one point in the article, that comes up. And he says, with 2,000 planes and its pattern bombing, he says, we're bombing civilians. But our command wanted to get the war over with. And then it says, then Shapiro, she's writing... He had thought about this a lot over the years. What he thought then, he agrees with now. Quote, whatever it takes to stop this evil. We went on a mission, we dropped bombs, we came back. As far as other bombers, I've gone to a lot of reunions and I never heard any regret. So he's saying in this article about Christmas, and, you know, he's saying that he participated in firebombing raids and they used napalm back then. People think napalm is just something that was in the Vietnam War. No, they used napalm back then. Uh, Firebombing raids on little German children in Berlin, and he's saying he has no regrets over it whatsoever because they were fighting evil. Then it says he he says that he feels like many Jewish soldiers were denied promotions in the Air Force and the Army because of anti-Semitism, and this this I thought tied nicely to your interesting uh, bit there about uh, pilots uh, and and the Air Force and and the whole thing of airline pilots being like inherently. The non-Jewish kind of profession and something that they want to destroy. It says he has thorny memories. Many heroes in the Army Air Corps joined the commercial airline industry after the war, which was then based in New York. But here, too, Spiegel, Spiegel said he faced discrimination. So skipping ahead, we get to the Christmas bit. And apparently he was working for a company uh, that uh, was creating these fake... Um, I don't know, they were like displays somehow for uh, stores of this plastic stuff that it wasn't really taking off. And he came up with the idea of turning it into Christmas trees and marketing it as, you know, a new type of fake Christmas tree. Because I think fake Christmas trees had existed prior to this, but they were like the real tinsel kind that look obviously fake. And he thought of using this material to create uh, more lifelike, I guess, fake Christmas trees, which is the model of all fake Christmas trees today. And it talks, then the article goes on to talk about how he founded his own company. By the mid-1970s, Spiegel's company, America Tree and Wreath, was producing more, or about 800,000 trees a year off the, off, uh, one off the assembly line every four minutes. After expanding and starting his own artificial tree company, he finally sold that business and retired in 1993 as a multi-millionaire. Now lives in a large apartment building with a doorman and a magnificent view of Central Park. Although artificial trees descended from Spiegel's designs are found in close to 3 quarters of American homes that put up Christmas trees, he doesn't keep a tree himself. He raised his children to take pride in their Jewish Japanese heritage. Apparently he married a Japanese woman and he still makes hanukkah
3: how do you say that latkes? I want to say lattes. Latkes? Is that well, it? latkes? Yeah, I think so. For another his... stolen another more stolen food item from like Nordic Oh yeah, of course. He in, still makes yeah.
4: the Hanukkah latkes for his grandchildren. So again, and then he and then they ask him again. You know, is at the end of the article, this this Jew Shapiro asked him, what are you more proud of, for inventing like the basically the fake Christmas tree, or for and revolutionizing and modernizing Christmas, or for you know bombing the German children? And he's like. That that's the one he says. We fought against fascism. We fought against Hitler's desire for a master race. So this article is like the whole Jewish thing in a nutshell. You have he he is not only he doesn't just happen to be Jewish, he is extremely conscious of his Jewishness. It is a huge part of his identity to the point where the guy who invented the fake Christmas tree that was pumping out you know eight hundred thousand trees a year and three quarters of Americans use these fake Christmas trees that this Jew created and got rich off of, he himself doesn't have one in his house, and he's celebrating Hanukkah instead. And he is also very conscious, very conscious of the fact, and he says it, that the firebombing of German cities, of Berlin and other cities that he participated in, was targeting civilians, and he has no moral qualms about that. But he also has no moral qualms about using Christmas, using it, to get filthy rich and by modernizing it, by taking, again, part of the, the, the thing of Christmas always was the traditional Christmas tree, a live tree, which, you know, again, we live in a modern world and people are very busy. I'm not going to say everyone is falling for the Jewish plot who has a fake tree, especially if you're in an urban area. It's hard to, you know, if you live in a small apartment, but uh, it's just incredible. It, it, it would stand to reason that the, the maker of the fake, nasty, fake plastic Christmas trees and the guy who got filthy rich off it was a Jew who doesn't celebrate Christmas and who, moreover, directly participated in the bombing of civilians in Germany in World War II and who, moreover, explicitly says he feels no guilt over it
3: whatsoever. Yeah, of course he feels no guilt for it. And you know, neither does anyone in the United States government. Has the government ever
6: apologized
3: for the bombing of Dresden? Oh, no. Maybe they did. Maybe they did in the context of, like, we inadvertently like damaged Jewish property, so we're sorry for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but but no, they have. Most people don't even know about the bombing of Dresden. You'll you'll hear about it mentioned, but most people probably even have haven't even seen pictures of it. And can you imagine this guy feeling uh, just all of the uh, the Hutzpah and uh, sort of genocidal rage as he as he piloted his B seventeen, an aircraft that I, I used to really uh, like a lot um, until my tastes have changed. Um, it piloted his B-17 and, and strafing, uh, German women and children. Um, you know, and I know B-17s don't strafe. That's fine. Um, maybe they do, they do have gun turrets, but they're not really meant for doing that. Um, yeah, I'm sure you felt great pleasure in that. I had no problem. Um, I, I do like the part in this article though, where, uh, it says that he tried to become a commercial airline pilot. And was refused. Yes. Uh. And and it was because of anti-Semitism. Yes. Um. Actually, uh. I mean, I would like to believe that that's the case, and maybe it, it was the case in some areas at, at that time. But um, often the you know guys that took shrapnel or or had some kind of uh, damage to their vision um were disqualified from becoming commercial airline pilots. So. Uh, of course, if that were the case with this Jew, like he would still tell you that he could not fly because of anti-Semitism. So yeah,
4: well, the, what, what's interesting to me about that is it just shows that he comes back to this country and like we beat fascism, but he's still complaining about anti-Semitism. You see, I mean, he still he still is is viewing the host country, the United States, that he came from, not with like oh, land of opportunity, what a wonderful place. He's still like oh, resentful about. The, the Goy and, and how anti Semitic they are, and he's blaming, you know, the, the various things on anti Semitism. And it also, the other thing with this article, Jazz, that just one more, yet another example. When I saw the Santa Inc. trailer and Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen, how the, the way the trailer opens, where they're talking about how busy, Christmas is a business and they're the ones, the elves are the ones behind it. That put this business on, and the role of Santa is just—they have different Santas, and it's just like the figurehead, the face that they put on it. But it's really this elf business that the elves do all the business stuff of keeping Christmas going. Um, this is yet another example of the the fact that what what Sarah Silverman and Seth Rogen are 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 parodying there, and and sort of making a—it's like a Jew joke; it's a joke for Jews, uh, an inside joke. Over the fact that the Christmas industry in this country has, for decades, been dominated by Jews and by the big department store heads and the owners of malls and the Jewish record companies producing stuff like, uh, you know, the
5: the, uh, the Rat big, Pack,
3: yeah,
4: yeah, and and so Santa Inc. You know, it it outrages people because it's the most obvious. And they're just completely dropping the mask and just defiling Christmas, like everything sacred and holy and nice and cozy about it. They're just like taking it and rubbing it in the shit and laughing about it. But really, uh, this has been going on for decades. And Jews like this, who was proud of the fact that he was firebombing civilians in Berlin... Uh, And and he's blaming his his lack of success in the commercial airline industry on anti-Semitism. So he feels the same way about American uh, goy that he does about German goy, I'm sure. Uh, He has found a way to subvert Christmas and profit off of it and uh, is wildly successful. So so you think of these Jews looking at all the Americans putting up their, their modern plastic Christmas trees, and they're just laughing about it. They're just laughing about it. Like, what, what a better way to defeat your enemies, rather than convince them to abandon Christmas and, and forget about Christ or forget about Yule and forget about their origins and their traditions. Just completely subvert them, transform them, modernize them, to use the, their word. Turn it into a plastic commercial thing, where the Jews are the sole beneficiaries of it and profit from it and get filthy rich off of it, filthy, filthy rich. He's got the nice apartment, looking over Central Park and everything else, and, of course, he himself is not celebrating Christmas. So, I mean, you know, this is our last uh, uh, show before Christmas, and I don't want to get people to get too, like, jumpy where every little thing that you have in your house, you're, you're, like, worrying about, oh, my God, is, you know, is this yet another Jewish Christmas subversion? But I think we can honestly say that the, the the plastic Christmas tree is pretty much a Jewish subversion of Christmas. And uh, it's one that people, you know, I, nobody knows that. And, and you know, you buy one because it's convenient or because you can't have a, a live tree in your place wherever you're living or whatever. But uh, it, it totally makes sense that, that, that the plastic Christmas tree is something invented by a Jew who actually, like, doesn't celebrate Christmas and does celebrate the time that he bombed a bunch of German civilians with napalm.
3: Well, well, and a lot of people will justify the the artificial Christmas tree because it, it's better for the environment or something. But I mean, as as uh, Alex McNabb pointed out on a recent tedious, the uh, the shipping of, like the tankers that come over, not tankers, the the giant container ships that come over. Uh, like, those are some of the most pollution uh, creating vehicles on the planet. Um, and so, basically, creating these products and shipping them to people. And then, they're, they're obviously uh, planned obsolescence does not end with computers, it extends to Christmas trees and things like that. Uh, where, you know, you buy an artificial Christmas tree and it, it's not, especially his company, which is the American Christmas tree company. Of course, it's called American. Because <laughs> right. that's what he's, of course, that's what he's LARPing as. Um, it should just be called the, the, like the Jewish Christmas tree, the fake Jewish Christmas tree company. Yes. Um, they're designed not to last that long. Um, the, like the really expensive ones... That are not made by the American Christmas tree company are the ones that have like you know it 's wired in parallel, so if one bulb goes out they don't all go out versus a series where it's like they just like good luck finding on a pre wired Christmas tree too, which is the new thing make Christmas easy and as lazy as possible right. uh, there's a real there's a really expensive uh fake Christmas tree out there that like flips upside down and like goes in a closet and is like literally on like wheels, like a mannequin and like boomers just like wheel it out of their closet and it flips upside down. And then it like, you just turn it on and da-da-da-da. like part of the magic, regardless of what date you decide to put up your, tree, <laughs> right. um, is, is like assembling the tree and arranging the lights. And so it's different every year, but like with a pre lit Christmas tree, it's just going to be the same. Even if you have lights that change color, like in patterns and whatever, it's going to be the same look every year. Um, right. you know, there's the same arrangement, same branches, uh, and, and people say that this is better for the environment, but it's really not like plastics and, and all of the things that go to create these things that have to be really, they wear out in a year or two. One bulb goes dead. You throw the whole thing away because you can't figure out where they are. Um, oh, but when you throw just,
4: out the old Christmas tree, a real Christmas tree, as you say, you, you either light it on fire or you put it out in the woods. You know, my, my parents used to, cause they're big, both of them are into birding, uh, and they were into birding like long before it became like a liberal bourgeois thing. And, uh, so, if you take a Christmas tree and you put it out at the edge of like the woods, you know, if you have, if you're fortunate enough to have woods around your property. Um you know the birds like to to nest in it sometimes or they'll they'll take bits and pieces of it and use it for their nesting and like you can you can take a tree and put it out there and it becomes part of the it's it's used by nature, you know, but these plastic ones, yeah they're gonna end up uh you know in the in the big the giant great dump heap in the middle of the ocean uh someday you know and not degrading ever because they're plastic
3: <laughs> yeah i mean that's and that's the thing like uh now what some people will do too is um, they'll do the live Christmas tree and they'll actually, uh, you're sort of limited in size, uh, but they'll they'll actually buy a live one and then go plant it um, in their yard or in, oh, their, yeah. in the woods yeah. or something. And, and then, and then you, there's no, like I know there's some romantic uh, sort of sentimentality tied up with like cutting down the tree and, and dragging it back to the house. See now when the, when the planet is much less populated um, then we don't have these concerns. You know, when, when North America has like a, just a million white people living there, everybody can cut down a Christmas tree and there's never going to be a problem with them coming back. But when you, we don't need 6 billion people celebrating Christmas. No, I'm sorry. We don't, we just no. don't, we don't need, we don't need that. Those people aren't really celebrating it other than a consumer Uh, holiday, and and capitalism is what made the planet filled with six billion, like, uh, mindless consumers. Anyway, like, we don't, overpopulation so that Jews have a very robust market to sell their shit to, and we don't need that. We don't, I'm not advocating for genocide. I'm just saying, like, even even your like most bland like liberal would agree that you you like need there are too many people on the planet it's overpopulated but now what they would say is it's overpopulated with white people and they'll happy happily like commit suicide uh in order for like you know 10 uh to continue shitting in the street and living in mud huts and then like desiring you know the life uh that the people have in america that they're shown on tv we can't do that like that this like this pipeline uh of consumerism like it has to stop it 's all been set up for for Jews to profit, and Christmas is just kind of another part of that where people in other countries uh desire the the American holiday they see how what it, how it is shown to them on television and the, all they want that 's the american dream uh, is this like bastardized perverted form of christmas and in, in the the fake christmas tree and in everything that has gone into the modernization of christmas i think we 're like Christmas has been modernized. Now we're in kind of like postmodern Christmas. <laughs> yes, the postmodernization
4: um, and, of Christmas.
3: That's really yeah, true. It's, Santa it's, Inc is
4: postmodern.
3: Yeah, Santa Inc is the postmodernization of Christmas. Absolutely, mark that down. So yeah, it's it's um it's really in in and, and how how long before your Christmas tree is just like in in meta somewhere? It's just like. <laughs> part of virtual re- virtual reality. Yeah, um, exactly,
4: you yeah. put on your glasses and there's your Christmas tree. You know, I, I, it's funny too. I was digging here and the Chris, you know, O Tannenbaum is like a great German Christmas carol, very ancient, and the uh you know, Christmas trees are always associated with Germany and uh the, the Nazis were really big on Christmas trees even when they were like at their most de-emphasizing the Christian aspects. Some factions within the, the the Third Reich that were that were playing down the Christian aspects of Christmas uh, always were big on the Christmas tree, and it's funny because it is. I, I'm just looking on Wikipedia; it's tied to the Germans and Germany uh, very strongly. It says that the earliest legend of the origin of a fir tree becoming a Christian symbol dates back to 723 AD, involving Saint Boniface as he was evangelizing Germany. I remember this legend; he cut down the uh, the sacred oak tree that the pagans worshipped, uh, and behind it, he he took an axe and cut it down in the name of Jesus. And behind it, there was a baby fir tree, and he said, "Let this tree be the symbol of the true God, and its leaves evergreen and will not die." Anyway, and then it became a big thing in Germany uh, under Luther uh, and Martin Luther. It says modern Christmas trees originated during the Renaissance in early modern Germany. Its 16th century origins were sometime associated with Pro- Protestant Christian reformer Martin Luther, who is said to have added, first added lighted candles to an evergreen tree. So again, Martin Luther, we know his opinion on the Jews, and all Jews know his opinion on the Jews. And we know that the Christmas tree is something that is, you know widespread, it's ubiquitous in the United States. But it's it's the origin of this goes back to German tradition. The fact that, you know, the Teutoburg Forest, the Germans have been a forest people going back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Obviously, there's nothing uh, Middle Eastern or three kings, three wise men uh, of, you know, uh, the Holy Land about a fir tree. It's a northern Europe, northern central Europe symbol of Christmas. So it makes perfect sense that they would want to particularly subvert this. And it's interesting also Because it shows this. Uh, This is in the same article. It says that under the Marxist-Leninist doctrine of state atheism in the Soviet Union, after its foundation in 1917, Christmas celebrations, along with other holidays, were prohibited as a result of the Soviet anti-religious campaign. The League of Militant Atheists encouraged school pupils to campaign against Christmas traditions, among them being the Christmas tree, as well as other Christian holidays, including Easter. Gee, I wonder why these... uh, Marxists and Leninists were against Christmas, uh, and then uh, it said that they 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 were pushing against that. So you look at that's the 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 Jew Bolshevik thing. That's that's the uh, that's the outdated way of fighting Christmas. You know, the Jew Bolshevik way of fighting Christmas was just outlaw it, outlaw it, prohibit it. You know, punish people for celebrating Christmas. But, you know, when you have a Jew commissar doing that, it's pretty obvious and it's going to make the people turn against you. So let's turn away from the old outdated communist method and go to the modern capitalist method, which is, and that's the, 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 the you know, the testing, the A-B testing of communism and capitalism that we saw the Jews do during the 20th century. This is the more effective way of handling it. Don't ban it. Just totally subvert it make it, trivialize it, make it into something meaningless, into materialism, consumerism, and uh, make it literally into something plastic. (laughs) You know, take something organic and natural and turn it into something that's plastic that you can become a millionaire off of. And then finally, we end up at Santa Inc., where they are uh, doing their postmodern Jews joking about their own subversion of Christmas to themselves. But, uh, yeah, I just want people to understand that, that Santa, Inc. is just the tip, tip, tippy top of the iceberg. And it is it is very, in uh, in many ways, it is like a postmodern, a postmodern um, uh, Jewish interpretation of Christmas. They've gone beyond just modernizing it and subverting it to now they're actually uh, making jokes about it and parodying themselves.
3: Yeah, well, and our job is to, to keep it, Keep it alive. And I think we we uh, and especially uh, jolly old Michael McKivitt through Operation White Christmas has done a very good job at uh, the constructing the postmodern Christmas and and actually giving some families a a real Christmas and some real happiness, um, among other things. I mean, just the just, you know, us doing what we're doing um, is giving people a lot of hope. Uh, that is what you know. If you listen to the actual original Christmas songs, that's what it's all about. I know a lot of that is tied up in in the coming of uh, Jesus Christ and being born and everything. But uh, even even prior to that, uh, when this was a, a different holiday, um, it, it had all of the same sentiments uh, wrapped up in it when it was a pagan holiday. And so, uh, and you can see that that's what Jews are also targeting now. When you have like Mickey Weinstein going after the wreath. And uh, going after the Christmas tree, they always mention that uh, they try to in before uh, paganism too. As like, well, even if you say that, well, this isn't even a Christian symbol, therefore Jews owned. Like, they, you're not owning the Jews by by saying that they're still going to go after the symbol. And they probably they probably hate those symbols more because they predate Christianity. Um, I know Jews they, they hate Christianity. They they want to destroy Christianity, but they actually hate those symbols more because. They have a much longer uh, time horizon, uh, and and therefore are, are necessary to defeat. Because if it wasn't for, you know, green being the, the symbol of the season, um, and you know, lighting candles and and everything that that is wrapped up into uh, Christmas as a as a holiday that predates Christianity, um, when it was called uh, a number of other things, obviously Christianity had to adopt the things that were already popular with people in order for. Uh, them to accept these as Christian holidays. And so if those things were already popular amongst Gentiles, then you can bet your bottom dollar that those were things that Jews were already having a problem with and hating because (laughs) it was, it it was something that they always, uh, they always found a great distaste for uh, and they've been wanting to destroy. And that's what they're doing because they don't like it. They don't like it when um, white people and mass, are whether it's celebrating it for for uh christ being born or celebrating it for yule or for whatever reason they don't like these things because it's whites doing something together that has a positive uh positive uh, emotion positive feeling uh which you know anything that whites feel is positive is is inherently anti-semitic that's just how things work so uh it has to be destroyed and so it's our job to prevent them from destroying it and just small acts like that um you know, there is there is, you know, I know it's a conservative bit to like wish a libtard Merry Christmas, but it's just wish everybody a Merry Christmas because chances are somebody's Jewish and they're going to get mad. <laughs> um, so and so regard, and don't get don't get caught up in the like, well, actually, Jesus and like whatever, just just Merry Christmas. No, it's easy enough. No, no, and most people really appreciate it. So yeah. th- they really will. And the people who don't are either who have bought into the propaganda or they are the people creating the propaganda themselves either way you're pissing off the right people so uh i think we'll wish everybody a merry christmas right here Uh, i will do this again tomorrow on jazz and jesse uh you warren will do it uh i I don't think this is it no this is it yeah
4: well i'll I'll just say this about wishing I, i hope everyone has a wonderful wonderful christmas and has been is able to spend time with their family and is able to turn the phones off and the screens and, and, and shut politics off for a while i know you know we're talking about all this jewish subversion of christmas and it's politicizing it but you know when the day comes you shut that off um i i, I just want to say that you know i i've had like I, I stressful stuff trying to get christmas cards out and do shopping and, and traveling to see relatives and all kinds of stuff and I caught a little cold here because I've just been kind of run down the last few days and I was thinking oh man so much to do even between now and Christmas and then I was thinking I just thought about um, the uh, the families uh, in Waukesha who are going to be celebrating Christmas without their, without their loved ones and um, who also uh, or, or their loved ones are in the hospital and all the people our people all across this country who are going to have a very very difficult christmas because of the events of the past year that for everyone to don't get angry with your with your loved ones and your relatives with all the christmas chaos don't have fights over christmas be thankful for everything that you have treasure your loved ones treasure the people around you your friends your comrades think about all the good things in your life say a prayer be thankful for that uh, and say a prayer for all the people who are having a very difficult Christmas out there uh, you mentioned the Operation White Christmas, it was a, about $15,000 in toys and presents were, were gotten for white kids, needy white kids with uh, Santa McKevitt and, uh, and, his, and his wonderful wife and, and the effort they did between Evergreen and NJP so uh, yeah uh, God bless our movement and our wonderful people and just Hold everyone close to your hearts this Christmas, and uh, try to have a good holiday, and we'll start off fresh with everything in the new year.
3: Yep, that's right. Merry Christmas, everybody, and we'll, we'll talk to you on the other
9: side.
0: You're listening to Resolution Radio Radio. ResolutionRDO.com
1: Hi, this is Ron Paul. I am a former congressman, physician, and presidential candidate. The world is in turmoil. Things like Ebola, earthquakes, wars, and famines are commonplace. As Americans, we are largely sheltered from these events. However, in parts of the world, just having enough food is a huge problem. For some of us, there is the nagging thought that we may not always have it so good. So we keep some food on hand just in case. My family and I have found a product that helps us do this better. It's a home freeze dryer from Harvest Right. With it, we eat healthier and store a little more food. We freeze-dry everything we love to eat, and it lasts up to 25 years. Who knows what the future will bring? One thing's certain, my family and I will always have food on the table. To learn more, go to HarvestRight.com or call 800-763-5999. That's HarvestRight.com or 800-763-5999.
6: You're to Resolution Radio Radio Radio. Resolution
1: there was a mighty nation blessed above all of creation charlie daniels he's always loved america he's always defended the second amendment let me let me just read a little thing here from agenda 21 the american system of justice must be changed to conform to the rest of the world individual rights will have to take a back seat to the collective well you know what the next booth's gonna be don't you it's gonna be coming for your gun oh yeah i tell it ain't gonna sit well down my way at all It ain't gonna sit well. Do you ever wonder what happened to America? It's time to ride, boys. We need a thousand Paul Revere's.
2: When I was a boy, it was okay to be proud of the flag, heritage, mom, and apple pie. And beef was for supper revelation dawn of global government theatrical screenings on demand dvds now available starring alex jones charlie daniels special ops general jerry boykin want to shed some tears over the red white and blue revelation the
7: let's fix it